Coming soon to own on video cassette. Back on the Y2K front, despite all of the assurances that the Y2K computer problems are under control. Team's debut of Star Wars to be the opening act for a multi-billion dollar summer show. Only one question remains, just how many box office records can one movie break? You take the blue pill, the story ends. I see dead people. Malkovich, Malkovich. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. I will not apologize for what I need. I will not apologize for what I want. Five, four, three, two, one. Happy 1999. Hello everyone, welcome back to 1999, the year that rocked cinema. I think I st we still remember how to do this. My name is Jared Stossel. My name is Andrew Tucker. And it's been a while. I think that's my name. It is, is, it? I, it is your name. It is. Okay. You definitely have your name. And this is the podcast where we do a deep dive into every film from the year 1999, getting down to the core of why this is one of the most influential years in all of cinematic history. Hell yeah, you remembered the intro. I did. It's Good like job. a muscle memory. Um, yeah, so we've been gone for a while. Um, life has been a lot lately. There have been uh, nothing bad, just a lot of shit going on. Uh, you're all living in 2020. I don't need to explain shit to you. Um, you know what's <laughs> you know that a lot's going on right now. Um, but we're back. We're happy to do this. And I want to put a little thing at the top of this. So if you have been listening to the show, First off, thank you. We uh, love hearing that people are loving the show and having yeah, fun. Yeah, all five of you. It's great. Thank you. <laughs> Watching along with us every week. So we really appreciate it. But uh, last time we did an episode, uh, which was Buena Vista Social Club, if I'm correct on that. Uh, at the end of the episode, we said the next film would be Varsity Blues. Um, so it was supposed to be, it was supposed to be, you know why? Cause football season was starting. That's true. And guess what? We just fucked all the way off for a <laughs> month and now there's an election next week. Yeah. So, so this week's movie is election. If you're one of the millions of Americans who still believes that honesty, integrity, and fidelity are the cornerstones of our democracy, we suggest you wait for another preview before getting your popcorn. In the nation's capital, a new leader has found a place in the halls of power. But her story began in the halls of high school. We'll move on now to the presidential race with three candidates running. The first is Tracy Flick. One thing that's important to know about me is that I'm an only child. My mom is really devoted to me. She likes to write letters to successful women like Elizabeth Dole and Connie Chung and ask them what advice do they have for me, Tracy, her daughter. The next candidate for student body president is Paul Metzler. I just don't think somebody would do something like that on purpose. <laughs> I think you did it. And if you want to keep questioning me like this, I won't continue without my attorney present. And do not often speak with you and ask for things. 
But now I really must insist that you help me win the election tomorrow, because I deserve it and Paul Metzler doesn't, as you well know. The final candidate, sophomore Tammy Metzler. I'm attracted to the person. It's just that all the people I've ever been attracted to happen to be girls. You should stop her. She's not qualified. We can't both run, can we? I mean, we're brother and sister, can we? Tracy and I are totally in love. In love? Yeah. So is this a moral situation or an ethical situation? When I win the presidency, that means you and I are going to be spending a lot of time together. <laughs> Cast your vote for Tracy Fleck next week. You won't just be voting for me. You suck! You'll be voting for yourself. Who knew how high she would climb in life? I had to stop her. Excuse me! Will you please be quiet? Now. Paramount Pictures presents an MTV Films production. Order! Order! Starring Matthew Broderick, oh. Reese Witherspoon. Hey, what happened to your eye? What happened to your eye? Are you okay, Mr. McAllister? I'm fine. On the road to greatness. Never underestimate an overachiever. Looks like you could use a cupcake. Election. Cast your vote. But don't vote at all! Yeah, it's we're, we're, we 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 may have a constitutional crisis on our hands. We don't know. It's gonna be it's gonna be a big week next week. Um, so this episode is we wanted to do this as kind of an homage to the fact that there is an election going on. Even if we, I haven't done the math, but I think it works out that even if we do all of the films from 1999, we won't get a chance to do an election episode that centers on a presidential election so yeah and if trump wins we won't have free speech anymore so this could be our last episode that's true so um anyway please fucking go and vote all of you please go and vote vote him out um anyway (laughs) Um, we don't take a stance on this podcast but but vote him the fuck out yeah vote him the fuck out and don't vote for kanye please anyway so this is um uh, this week is election, which is a film by Alexander Payne, uh, starring Matthew Broderick and Reese Witherspoon. Um, and I will say this: we have not, we had not seen this film before we did the show. We picked it because oh, election, oh, there's an election coming up. Oh, we should probably do that. It is that's part of the plot, at least. Um, Andrew, what did you think of this film the first time you watched it? Dude, okay, so this movie is fucking weird. Yeah. Okay, it's the weirdest movie I've seen in a very long time. Yeah. And what's even weirder about it? is that it's like this cult classic movie that was never really a hit when it came out and it like wasn't supposed to be a hit when it came out and they didn't even think it was going to be like an Oscar contender or anything like that. And it really wasn't even something that was supposed to be seen as like a mainstream comedy. It's just this weird fucking movie and it was cobbled together out of a novel that was thrown in the scrap heap and it was directed by some dude who'd only done like one movie before it. And you know what? It was fucking awesome. Yeah, it was, it was, very good, but very weird, <laughs> I think yeah. is the best way I could possibly phrase this. Um, it is a strange movie. We're going to get into all of that with this episode. Um, it's Like I said, it's been a while. It's good to see you again, dude. I'm really glad we're doing this again, um, finding happy things to do while uh, America kind of crumbles. But okay, let's set the it's scene. It's good to see you too, buddy. <laughs> it's real nice. It's good. Let's set the scene. Election was released on April 23rd, 1999. It was written by Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor, directed by Alexander Payne. 
So, brief synopsis according to imdb.com, a high school teacher's personal life becomes complicated as he works with students during the school's election, particularly with an obsessive overachiever determined to become student body president. Now, Andrew, please give us your thorough rundown for this film in all of its weirdness. Oh, I will, because that little synopsis doesn't tell you jack shit. No, it doesn't. You ready for this? Yeah. You ready for this? Because this is like a page and a half. Yeah. Okay. So, since this movie is about politics and elections, I'm going to start my rundown with a quote from one of the most famous politicians in the world. And that is none other than the newly elected district attorney of Gotham City, Mr. Harvey Dent. Oh, I thought you were going to say like Barack Obama, but okay, go go for it. Harvey Dent. So, (laughs) Harvey Dent said, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And the reason why I find that quote to be relevant for this movie is that election completes Matthew Broderick's transformation from the hero, Ferris Bueller, to the villain, (laughs) Ed Rooney. And while he's not literally playing Ed Rooney in this movie, he is playing Jim McAllister, who is a bummed-out high school employee who is hell-bent on destroying one student in particular. That sounds like Ed Rooney to me. So, here's what happens, and bear with me because it's a lot of stuff. We're starting out at G.W. Carver High School, which, if you didn't know, stands for George Washington Carver High School, and he is the man who discovered what? Peanut, peanut butter. butter. So, anyway, I mean, he didn't really discover it. He put, he called it peanut butter. I'm sure some fucking caveman squashed a peanut on accident a long time ago and made peanut butter. Anyway, we're at this high school. We're in Omaha, Nebraska, and we're balls deep in this student government election. And Jim McAllister, who's the school's civics teacher, is cleaning out the staff room refrigerator one morning, and he accidentally tosses some leftovers on the floor. That's going to seem like a weird detail, but it's not. It comes back around later, okay? Here's something more important than that, though. Mr. McAllister is also responsible for overseeing the election process at the school, and he's not very excited about it. Why, you ask? Or don't. That's fine, too. Because one of his students, an <laughs> overachieving goody-two-shoes named Tracy Flick, is running unopposed for student body president, and there are a couple of problems with that. The first problem is that Jim thinks Tracy is really fucking annoying. And the second problem is that Tracy was recently caught dicking Jim's best friend, Dave, who was a fellow teacher at the school. So I will say, when that moment happened, I was like, and it just got weird. <laughs> yeah, that's that's when it starts to go off the rails, and it's very early in the movie. And I want to clarify what I said, because I said that she's dicking Dave. Technically, Dave is a teacher at the high school. Realistically, he's the one fucking Tracy, because, you know, power dynamics and things like that. But... Power dynamics are a gray area in this movie, and it's a whole discussion. Anyway, long story short, if Tracy wins the election, which she's going to because she's running unopposed, Jim McAllister is going to have to spend a shitload of time with her, and he doesn't want to do that. So, Jim comes up with a brilliant plan, and he convinces this guy named Paul Metzler, who's an insanely popular football player, but he can't play because his leg is broken, to run against Tracy. And I'll just say this. This is one of the only situations in which it's appropriate for a teacher to force a kid with a broken leg to run, because he's not actually running. He's running for (laughs) office. Anyway, we've got our two candidates, Tracy and Paul. We have the hardworking student who's earned her way into the election, and then we have this privileged white dude who just kind of found himself involved if that sounds a little 2016-y to you you're not alone right but hold on a second wait jared i'm telling you to wait because there's another candidate entering the race and you might want to grab a towel because i'm about to spill the tea 
Okay. Okay. That candidate's name is Tammy Metzler. Oh, Does I that last gonna... name sound familiar to you? I thought you were going to say Bob Dole. But anyway, yes, yeah, Tammy Metzler. Not Bob sounds... Dole. Bob Dole is not talking about Bob <laughs> Dole right now. The candidate's name is Tammy Metzler. Her last name should sound familiar because it's the same last name as Paul. She's Paul's sister. Uh-huh. But she's not running because she wants to. She's running for revenge because her ex-girlfriend is now her brother's girlfriend slash campaign manager. And there's a lot of complaining and blowjobs and all kinds of other stuff just like real U.S. politics. So, the three candidates make their speeches. Tracy's is well-prepared and well-received. Paul's is awful, but people love him in a very, like, San Dimas high school football rules kind of way. <laughs> Tammy's is defiant, and she promises to dissolve the student government if she wins. So the libertarian like, won. Right. But just like any defiant candidate who has progressive ideas about government, <clears throat> Bernie Sanders, uh, she gets suspended <clears throat> and eventually expelled. Yeah. So... There's some drama that happens after that about election posters being torn down. Tammy takes the rap for that, even though Tracy's actually the one who did it. And then there's this weird side story about how Jim is fucking Dave's ex-wife and washing his balls in a hotel room and getting stung by a bee. And then just like that, it's election day. You'll notice that I glossed over some stuff because I don't know why it's in the movie. It doesn't really need to be there. It has nothing to do with anything else. But this is where shit goes down, okay? Because Paul ends up voting for Tracy because he feels icky about voting for himself. And guess what? Tracy ends up winning the election by one vote. Paul's vote. And Mr. McAllister is fucking furious about it. So he conducts a private recount, and he ends up tossing two of the votes for Tracy in the garbage. He then declares Paul the winner in front of the whole school. But there's a problem again. The kid who did the original count of the ballots knows that something is fucked up, and Jim ends up getting caught. Why? Because the janitor who cleans the staff room was pissed off about the leftovers that he threw on the floor in the first five minutes of the movie, and he decided to out him when he found the ballots in the trash. It's a great little reveal. Definitely a great great little reveal. So Tracy ends up becoming president and eventually going on to work for a prominent Republican congressman. (gasps) Did you say Republican? Yeah, I fucking did, because guess what? (laughs) Tracy was a Republican all along. So if you were rooting for her in this movie, guess what? You fucked up a little bit. (laughs) And you were... (laughs) So there. Jim is divorced and unemployed, so he ends up becoming a docent at a museum in New York City. But then, because we just need to be in a million different locations in this movie, he flies to Washington, D.C. for a docent convention, which doesn't fucking exist. And while he's there, he's walking down the street, sipping on a Pepsi, and he sees Tracy coming out of a building with a Republican congressman And when she gets into the limousine and starts to drive away, he throws the Pepsi at the back window. They stop. They yell at him. He runs away. And that's it. A lot happens in this movie, for sure. Um, And it is about an election. But it's not about, like, a real election. It's about a high school election. It's both a high school movie that's not totally about high school, and it's an election movie that's not totally about an election. Yeah. That's a Jared, what you just said was so much shorter and more accurate than all the shit that I just said. I don't know why you have me do this But anymore. we needed to know, and it was very entertaining and very fun. So let's talk about the making of this movie, because uh, we got to talk about the inspiration. Before we talk about Election the Movie, we have to talk about Election the Novel, which was published by Tom Parada in 1998. Okay, you ready? You ready to go? Yeah, dude. Because we're going to fire up that thing that we have every roll. episode called the Way Way Back Machine. Ooh, hold on. I'm climbing into my seat. <laughs> do we have the seat warmers in this model? We do have the seat warmers oh, in this yeah. model. Oh, yeah. I can feel them toasting up my buns. Awesome. I sprung for the extra large cup holders, too. So you can have Ooh, the I'm Pepsi. I'm sprung, too. 
<laughs> so we're going to take a little trip back to 1992 for this. So, <laughs> so to set the scene for 1992, Microsoft had just released Windows 3.1. The best one they ever made, in my opinion. <laughs> Um, the LAPD officers who beat Rodney King have just been acquitted at this point. Uh, wow, so nothing's changed. No, unfortunately, cool. nothing's okay. changed. Jesus. Uh, Jay Leno has just become the new host of The Tonight Show. And of okay, course. So Jay Leno. Jay Leno with the host of The Tonight Show. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be great. Oh, yeah, it's oh, going to be great. Look at my yeah. car. I've got lots of cards. You guys see this? You see this in the papers? Yeah, look at them, the fucking crimson chin. Look at that. <laughs> I love that he's crimson chin. And of course, we're smack dab in the middle of the 1992 presidential election. And in that election was a major source of inspiration for Parada's novel. So, in case you forgot, or if you were barely still a fetus back then, um, it's okay. The 1992 United States presidential election featured Democratic Governor Bill Clinton of Arkansas facing off against incumbent Republican President George H.W. Bush. And that's different from the other one. Yeah. But not by much. No. Because uh, they did the same shit just a few years apart. <laughs> While that election may have been a little more civil than the one we're going through right now, just a little bit, it was pretty much just as gripping to a number of people across the United States. And one of those people was Tom Parada, who went on to write The Leftovers and Mrs. Fletcher, both of which have since been adapted into big old TV productions. Parada was recently unemployed from Yale University at the time, and he'd found himself becoming obsessed with politics for the first time in his life. See, this was a different era, you guys. And some people in the past used to have the luxury of not having to think about politics 24 hours a day every day. No. That was a thing that used to happen. Yep. It's not like that now. No, you weren't sitting up doom scrolling through your Twitter feed wondering if uh, somebody was going to tweet something and cause North Korea to fire missiles at our country. Are you um, talking about me, Jared? I get the sense you're talking about me. Yeah, you fucking asshole. <laughs> I'm not sorry about it. <laughs> as Parada put it in an interview with Entertainment Weekly, this was, as Andrew was just talking about, pre-internet, so you had to really work to be obsessed with something. That meant you had to go and... No, you... Oh my god, I just realized that. Internet wasn't released until 1995. You couldn't even get on the internet. You had to go... Find newspapers. You had to go yeah. find magazines. You had to go watch TV. If you could, and and you had to catch it at the right time. Because if you didn't, it was gone forever. Yep. Gone. Anyway, one of the things that Parada found so interesting about the 1992 election was that it felt very different from the other presidential elections that had come before it. I have no idea what that feels like, Tom. And Parada already did a really good job of explaining that difference succinctly. So instead of reinventing the wheel, I'm just going to tell you what he said. Quote, Okay, do it. I think it was just the beginning of that moment when candidates' private lives became a really important part of the political discussion. The private behavior of these people was now part of the political discourse, and we had to decide as an electorate if we thought that there was a distinction between public and private. I remember just feeling, oh, this is new. Yeah, again, I wonder what that feels like, Tom. Yeah, I think we know what the electorate decided, don't we? Yeah. The novelist part of Prada's brain zeroed in on this idea, this blurring of lines between personal and political, and that became one of his main sources of inspiration for this novel. But another component of the 1992 election inspired Prada's work, too. And that was the sudden inclusion of a third candidate, 
On March 18, 1992, Texas billionaire H. Ross Perot appeared on CNN's Larry King Live and announced that he would run for U.S. president as an independent if volunteers put him on the ballot in all 50 states. Long story short, that happened, and it really shook up the election. If you've seen the movie, you'll remember Tammy Metzler shakes things up by entering the race for student body president, and that's definitely a nod to Perot's decision to run. Once the election ended, Parada was still thinking about it, and he said, When it was over, I just felt a little bit bereft. I thought I wanted to write a political novel, but I don't know anything about politics that anybody else doesn't know. And that's an interesting point, dude, because as much as we're all dreading what happens next Tuesday, there's going to be a part of us that's like, this is over. The circus is over. Like, there's almost going to be like a hole. I mean, there's going to be an entirely different circus rolling into town immediately. But I think there's going to be this this kind of weird sense of, like, this TV show that we've all been watching for the last four years just got sh- shook up, basically. Hopefully it got ended, but we don't know I yet. I fucking right? so, hope it ends. I hope they cancel this show. <laughs> I, I, we'll I, see what I, I would like the new showrunners to enter the, the writer's room at this point because I, I don't like this shit. <laughs> yeah. You know who they should get? They should get Misha Green from uh, from Lovecraft's country. Because she's fucking fantastic. She is fantastic, but we're already in, like, a, a, a Westworld-ish Lovecraft HBO-style show. So I don't, I don't know if I want that. But if we Stop get— Stop shitting on my dreams, Jared. <laughs> but anyway— that, Okay, can you do that for five seconds? Yes, true. Okay, thanks. Okay. Good, because I'm going to talk about something else now. Good. The election wasn't the only thing going on in 1992 that shaped Parada's novel. He was also thinking about a lot of other things— which, again, he had the luxury to do back then. One of those things was what Parada perceived to be a new generation of women coming up through the college system, right? So according to his own observations as an instructor at Yale, 1992 saw a new generation of, quote, smart, ambitious, powerful young women appearing across the country. That's not to say that we didn't have smart, ambitious, and powerful young women before 1992. Of course. It's just to say that Parada noticed, like, hey, there's something different in the water here going on, you know? More importantly than that, he could sense that these young women were provoking a sense of discomfort in men because they were doing shit. And the guys around him were like, hey, wait a second. You mean to tell me that we're not just going to have everything handed to us forever? And they were like, yeah, yeah, that's what we mean. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So this idea of an ambitious young woman aiming high and challenging gender norms was something that Parada reflected in the character of Tracy Flick, which you'll see if you read the book or watch the movie. Um, another thing that was going on at the time was the codification of sexual harassment. And according to Parada, the early 90s were a time when sexual harassment was becoming not only more recognized, but also more clearly defined. And specifically, society was starting to understand that power dynamics played a role in sexual harassment. And that's what I was alluding to in the rundown earlier, right? So here's a quote from Parada. There was this new critique that has definitely become the reigning ideology, which is that there's a power relationship there, and relationships of unequal power are on their face sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. So people kind of prior to the early 90s weren't really thinking about it like that. Now they are. And these power dynamics were certainly something that Parada explored in the novel and Payne explored in the movie. Um, If you're not familiar with the source material at all, Tracy Flick, who's the hopeful student body president, is having 
an inappropriate sexual relationship with Dave Novotny, who is a teacher at the high school. Inappropriate sexual relationship is almost not extreme enough to describe what's going on <laughs> yeah. there. Um, there's definitely some fucked up stuff going on. And Mr. McAllister, who's Dave's best friend, is aware of this relationship. And he takes a very controversial stance, which is that Tracy is actually the one with the power in this relationship, even though she's being taken advantage of by a teacher who's like twice her age, at least. Yeah. So it's a weird stance to take. And that's one of the reasons why this movie is so strange to me, because I just don't understand the value of taking that stance as as a writer for your main character. Like, it seems like a total weird thing to do. Uh, yeah. In this scenario, it's very strange. But Parada kind of explained this a little bit when he was talking about some of the differences between the book and the movie. And it's a long quote, but I think it says it pretty clearly. So I'm just going to read it. Sure. So yeah, here's what he says. The Tracy in the book is more sexually powerful and grown up, I think than the Tracy in the film. And I think Mr. M was giving voice to a certain kind of male point of view on this, which was Tracy was the powerful one. She was young and she was sexy and she got to make the choice to have an affair. And she got to make the choice to ruin the life of the teacher she'd had an affair with. And so I think I was also exploring different ways of conceiving of the power dynamic. And admittedly, that was very early days for thinking about that. I'm not endorsing Mr. M's theory, but I think a lot of men felt that way at the time. Like, whoa, whoa, who's powerful? The hot young girl or the sad middle-aged man? And that's a really fucking weird thing to think about because you're right on this tipping point of we're starting to recognize that power dynamics mean something in this discussion, but we don't know how to talk about that yet, and we're scared to talk about it in a new way. There's so many different things going on in people's heads, I think. And so for Parada to try to capture that, I mean... He's capturing a real way of thinking. It's a creepy way of thinking that I don't agree with, but I think he captures it well, and then I think they carry it over into the movie well, and it makes me very uncomfortable. But watching this back in 1999, maybe I would have been more inclined to agree with Mr. McAllister. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know what people were thinking back yeah, then. Yeah, so as I times think this is a really, weird, yeah. a really weird topic. Yeah, so I, I definitely I understand what he's saying in terms of where he's coming from with the he's like i don't endorse this point of view but i think a lot of men were thinking about this and yes i agree with you i don't know exactly what people were thinking back in 1999 about this kind of stuff um we've evolved far more as a society um i i believe and i hope um that people have evolved to think that but i absolutely disagree with this idea and i think that's the point of the movie it's supposed to make you uncomfortable because when i see that what these middle-aged men are saying well, she's the cause for this. It's like, dude, you're hooking up with a teenager. You're in yeah. your late There's no excuse. You're in your like late 30s, mid 40s, whatever that I forget if they said what age they were, but you're in that age range. Teenagers' brains aren't fully developed at that point. Um, I think your brain stops growing when you hit like it officially finishes developing when you're 25. And when you're um a teenager, definitely in adolescence, your brain is still developing certain decision-making abilities for yourself. or It's developing certain yeah. areas that are key in decision-making and maturity and understanding. I, I'm, not, I'm not a fucking microbiologist, but, um, or uh, excuse me, I'm not a neurologist. But I could tell you that, like, no, the power dynamic, no matter what, it's, it, it's kind of like the guy who's like, well, this girl ruins my life. It's like, well, were, were you abusing her? 
Well, I mean, yeah, but it's like, then yeah, you're, you're the one at fault. It's one of those things. This is one of those topics that like, it's very similar to when we talked about American beauty, right? When I think about this movie, I I was calling this movie American beauty light all week because it's so similar thematically. It has a lot of the same shit going on, but it's done in like a wacky comedy kind of way instead of like this weird, dark urban drama thing. Right. And so when you watch those movies now, there's no interpretation in modern thinking where you're like, oh, yeah, you know, he was right. That doesn't happen now. But, like, back then, you might have had more of a split of people watching these movies who are like, oh, I could see how she's taking advantage of him. Right? So I think yeah. it's watching these older movies is interesting because it gives us an opportunity to see how much we've grown as a society. And, like, the ideas that we were raised on versus the ideas that the people writing these movies were raised on. Yeah. You know? I feel like, unfortunately, there's certain... I mean, when you look at... This may be kind of unrelated, but I feel like also on the topic, there's this thing with certain parts of society that I see today that want to, uh, I don't want to say cancel, because I feel like that's like the trendy word, but want to get rid of certain things. If it's like, oh, it's too taboo, I don't want to talk about it. It's like, I think that there should still be things like, I think that certain films, you should absolutely be able to see stuff like, Gone with the Wind and films like that cover taboo topics like American Beauty. Not because we're going to sit there and we're going to admire them, but they're time capsules. You can look at them and go, oh, this is how people thought about this shit. Time back capsule then. is a great way to put this. Yeah. It's like you can see, like, oh, okay, wow. I mean, you said when we did this podcast, you made this prediction that a majority of these movies are going to have plot lines that are not a majority, but a good portion of them are going to have plot lines that are not going to hold up and this is one of those things like seeing this for me i'm like this has no place in a comedy movie no you know but anyway this is a funny movie podcast and not a serious sexual harassment podcast (laughs) so what we're gonna do is we're just gonna keep on trucking yeah Um, how do you feel about that i'm good with that but it led to an interesting discussion i'm glad we i agree yeah but uh and finally, there was some sketchy shit that went down in Wisconsin. More specifically, it was tampering with an election. But it's not the kind of election... People don't tamper with elections. It's not the kind of election you might think. Excuse me, uh, Mr. Stossel, can you please show me the way to a local uh, ballot box? <laughs> I'm looking for a ballot box. Can you show me where to find ballot box? Uh, yeah, it's that way. These kerosene and matches are uh, unrelated to my inquiry. I'm just looking for a ballot box. Please vote. Um, in 1992, there was an incident at Memorial High School in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, in which school staff rigged a homecoming queen election. And according to a New York Times article from October 14th, 1992, because this is what the New York Times wrote about in 1992, a high school principal has resigned and three assistant principals have been disciplined after accusations that a student election was tampered with to prevent an unmarried pregnant girl from becoming homecoming queen. That's correct. You heard that all right. (laughs) April Schultz, a goth 17-year-old senior who was five months pregnant at the time, received more than 100 votes to be homecoming queen. The runner-up, Elizabeth Weld, received fewer than 70 votes. However, she was announced as the official homecoming queen at the school's homecoming celebration. What? 
after the you know you know what it probably was jared they probably had an electoral college at the school and so even though the goth girl got more votes she didn't necessarily win the election that's probably what happened after the ceremony a student on the homecoming committee told schultz that she had actually won and at that point schultz protested the results to the school authorities an investigation ensued, and the school superintendent determined that the ballots had been burned to cover up the results. Countless school <laughs> officials were punished. I love that this was the... Not to make fun of the story, but I love that this is what the, like, biggest scandal was at the time. I wish this was the biggest scandal we had at the think time. About, Jared, think about what has to be happening in these people's brains... To make this make sense. Yes. I think that a pregnant girl being the homecoming queen is inappropriate and unethical. So I'm going to burn ballots and rig an election to make it more ethical. It's like, so what are in you other on? words, I'm going to do something very unethical to cancel out this other thing that I perceive to be unethical. Doesn't that make sense to you? Exactly. So following the events, Schultz said, What they did to me was discriminatory and wrong. If people in authority can do this over something as trivial as the homecoming queen title, what will they not do? And upon reading the story, it really stuck in Parada's brain. He said in an interview, I remember being surprised at how upset I was at the idea that you could tamper with an election even for something as trivial as prom queen. And I realized I did actually think an election was kind of a sacred thing, which surprised me because I was pretty cynical. And that sentiment eventually made its way into the novel. If you've ever read the book or if you've watched the movie with us this week, you know that this is pretty much exactly what ends up happening in the race for student body president, with Mr. McAllister throwing away two of the votes for Tracy. But you, you said it really well. I, I don't think this is ethical, so I'm going to do something unethical to ruin this. Like, it's, I mean, it's perfectly said. It, it, Keep your eyes peeled to the fucking tube next week, people. Oh, my God. Because we might see some shit like this going down yeah. for real. Yeah. This is a little bit random, but it's also worth pointing out here that according to some sources, Parada's election is actually a reworking of an even earlier novel from 1941. And supposedly that source novel is Bud Schulberg's 1941 novel, What Makes Sammy Run? And in the Schulberg novel, an older writer, Al Mannheim, watches young Sammy Glick rise through the ranks of New York City journalism and the old Hollywood studio system. And in this movie, Al Mannheim is replaced by Jim McAllister and Sammy Glick is replaced by Tracy Flick. And Glick and Flick sound similar, so people are like, oh, I see what's going on here. Yeah. Um, this info comes from IMDb and not from Parada himself, and it's not verified, so I don't know how much stock to put in it, but figured I'd throw it out there because it's information that we have. Yep. So there you go. So, anyway, at this point, Parada's got all his influences figured out, and he sits down to write the novel that today's movie would eventually be based on. But here's where things get a little bit trippy. Trippy like Beatles trippy? Parada finishes the novel version of Election in 1993, and he shows it to his agent at the time. His <laughs> hey, look what I can do. <laughs> his agent shops the novel around to various publishers, but there's a problem. None of the publishers can figure out whether to market it as a young adult book or an adult novel. Keep this in mind later as we talk about the marketing for this movie. Well, I read the book, but <laughs> I can't tell if it's for young adults or adults. Ultimately, Parada's agent comes back and says four words that no novelist ever wants to hear. I can't publish this. 
So, paradophiles... I thought you were going to say you have genital herpes. Oh, I, I, would, I would talk to your doctor about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, this episode is brought to you by Valtrex. <laughs> the only medication that gets rid of your herpes and makes you better at roller skating. Oh, my God. Speaking of roller skating and commercials, you know those eHarmony commercials that they're showing all over, uh, that they're advertising everywhere, and the girls yeah. just skating for whatever reason? What's... Do, do people roller skate still? Yeah, girls just skate, dude. All right. Well, hey. Yeah, they're skaters. I didn't know. Um, Avril Lavigne doing doing God's work in this country. <laughs> so, Parada files his manuscript away in a drawer and moves on to his next work. Parada is on record as saying, I thought of it as a failure at the time. I was a little bit ashamed that I'd spent a year writing a book and couldn't get it published. Don't Welcome we to all? Welcome the fucking club, Tom. <laughs> And on that note, let's talk about the pitch and the sell. All right. Fucking Tom. All right. So, <laughs> so I'll pass this off to you, but you got to answer this question for me. How does an unpublished novel end up becoming a major Hollywood screenplay? I'll tell you. Please do. All right. Here we go. So a couple of years after the novel version of Election got shot down, Parada was at the Bread Loaf Writers Conference, and that's not a conference where you write about bread. It's just called that, okay? Sounds lovely. And he read from a different novel that he was working on called The Wishbones, not about the little dog who dresses up in the costumes and travels <laughs> throughout history and does all kinds of fun shit, a different Wishbones. Anyway, after his reading, a screenwriter named Janice Shapiro, who had been in the audience, came up to him and said, quote, I think The Wishbones would be a really interesting movie. I know these producers who might be interested. Those producers were Albert Berger and Ron Yerksa of Bonafide Productions. A couple weeks after the conference, Berger and Yerksa called Parada and asked him about the wishbones, which was still a work in progress. And Parada initially replied by saying, yeah, when I'm done, I'll send it to you, which is kind of like a, I mean, that's fair, but it's kind of like non-committal, right? Like you've got these producers who want to make your work and you're just like, yeah, I'll tell you about it later. Yeah. And so I think something in his brain clicks because he gets this weird random impulse to tell them about election, which is done and just sitting there in a drawer. And he says, quote, I have this other book. It's just sitting in a drawer about a high school election. And the producers were like, oh, yeah, let us see it. So he sent it to him. Berger and Yerksa loved the book, and they got it in front of a screenwriter and director named Alexander Payne. And while Alexander Payne had only directed one major feature at the time, which was called Citizen Ruth, he was on the brink of a hugely successful career. And I think it makes sense to pause for a couple of seconds so we can introduce you to him because this dude is potentially one of the most underrated writers and directors out there. If you don't believe me, his directing resume includes About Schmidt, Sideways, The Descendants, Nebraska, and most recently Downsizing. Plus, he did some writing on Jurassic Park 3. So that's that's yeah, a pretty has, decent resume. He has a pretty fantastic um, filmography. Um, Downsizing, not the best thing I've ever seen. <laughs> but we could put that one off in a different bucket for now. But anyway, at first, Payne told Berger and Yerksa that he didn't want to produce a teen comedy, and he thought that's what Election was. In his own words, Payne said, quote, I didn't read it for a long time because there were a lot of high school movies at the time. I couldn't be less interested in making a high school movie. And then finally I read it, and I liked it. It was set in a high school, but it wasn't a high school story per se. Also, what attracted me was the formal exercise of doing a movie with multiple points of view and multiple voiceovers. So he managed to get whatever little bugaboos he had going out of his head, and he decided that he was into it. And so he talked with the producers a little bit more, 
and they were able to convince him that the story was this dark adult comedy and he decided to do it. So when asked about what attracted him to the project, Payne admitted that there was a single scene in the book that had won him over. Here's what he said. There's a scene where he, being Mr. McAllister, quote, puts some champagne in the sink with ice from the ice machine, and he puts out Russell Stover chocolates. And then there's a scene where he gets into the bathtub and he washes his ass and his balls and his dick. He squatted over the bathtub washing himself. The whole film was pretty much shot for that shot. So that's what made him want to do this movie, is a scene of a guy washing his ass and balls and dick in a hotel tub. Uh, okay. Does that not pique your interest, Not Jared? really, no. Okay, well, you're not going to enjoy the Zoom invitation I sent you for Saturday. <laughs> um, but we can move past that. Well so anyway, played. Let's Payne move on. comes on board. <laughs> Payne comes on board as the director... Um, and the co-screenwriter, <laughs> along with his buddy Jim Taylor, I just thought Happy Halloween, right? Happy Halloween. That's that's honestly probably the scariest thing you're gonna see on yeah. Saturday. God, please, please don't. Because I'm gonna put the phone in the tub. God damn it. Yeah, it's gonna be like an undercarriage shot. <laughs> oh. All right. So anyway, we got Keep going. we got our writer director. Payne brings his buddy Jim Taylor into the thing to help him write it, and then events continue to unfold and soon Parada's manuscript is published as a novel by Putnam. And according to Parada, quote, it all happened very quickly because it was my first brush with Hollywood. I had no idea what a charmed process it was. I just thought, Oh, this is what happens. You mail a manuscript out there and in short order, it's in production. So he basically went from sitting there scratching his ass to having a Hollywood movie made and he didn't have to do very much. And he thought that's how it always was. And I think that's kind of funny. Yeah. Because it's not like that at all. Not at all. Except for sometimes when it is. If there's any other surefire indication that this movie was made in the 90s, it comes in the form of this little factoid we're about to share. Election was distributed by Paramount, but it was produced by none other than MTV Films. Leave it on. I want my MTV. I want your MTV. I want my MTV. I want my MTV. See new video music you can't see anywhere else. New contests, new specials, new guest BJs, new news. Too much. Yeah, too much. Never. 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 Too much is never enough. After MTV Films was founded in 1996, Election was just the third movie that was produced by the group. As a relatively new company, the whole premise behind MTV Films was that they were able to make movies differently than everybody else. Specifically, their shtick was to talk to MTV's audience of young people in a unique way. But their position in the industry also meant that they could take chances on new writers, new filmmakers, and new visionaries without going through the Hollywood system. According to Van Toffler, a former MTV executive and executive producer of the film, he said, quote, election fits squarely in terms of where the brand was going. No one had done anything like that. So they're basically painting themselves as some kind of like indie art house production company. They're trying to. But then they're being led down the street hand in hand with Paramount. So yeah, are you really that indie? Yeah. Are you? And it's, are you? and it's funny you say that because then Big Brother, aka Paramount, while MTV Films is super excited, they're ready to go, Paramount was skeptical, was skeptical about releasing an R-rated high school movie. Um, according to Van Toffler, 
Quote, it was not an easy movie to get made in a major studio system. Let me just say that I remember being called and lectured at home on a weekend about what I was thinking trying to make what Paramount Pictures viewed as a hard R movie based in a high school where pages were read to me like I'm a crazy man. Why would now I... You're, now you're sitting there telling me that these 16 and 17-year-old individuals are using words like fuck and pussy and cunt... I don't know about that. I've never heard a 16 or 17-year-old say, fuck, pussy, or con. I don't think they say those kinds of things. They say things like, golly gee willikers, and darn it. Why aren't there more golly gee willikers and darn it's in this movie? Come on, Van Toffler, give me something I can work with here. I can't even finish the quote. It's too good. <laughs> it's like Mad Men carried over. <laughs> It's like old Don Draper's just sitting there and he's speaking like he's like he's still in the 1960s. Um, <laughs> the quote continues. Why would I think of making an R-rated movie in a high school? It wasn't a typical Freddie Prince Jr. like high school movie, as you can tell. That- Freddie would never say penis. <laughs> Freddie wouldn't get a blowjob. Come on, Van Toffler. Freddie would just sit there playing patty cake with his pals. That's what Freddie would do. <laughs> At that point, if you were going to make a high school movie, it should be PG-13, not R. Yeah, you don't want some boy sitting there with his mom and hearing the word penis. Conolingus. Oh, my God. These are things we don't say. This is the 90s, <laughs> God damn it! I mean, gosh darn it. I'm going to have to put a dollar in the jar. <laughs> so, this is an interesting assertion, um, especially when you consider that there was... An, I was about to say this. Another R-rated high school movie that came out in this year... American Pie, which is far worse than this movie in terms right? of if, graphic, like just graphic language, uh, sex humor, all of it. Can you imagine what the fucking Puritans at Paramount said when they saw American Pie for the first time? That young man just put his phallus in a pie. A pie is a sacred dessert, you see. That's not where that belongs. Can you imagine, Jared, if they had a fucking time machine and they could get to, what was it, 2007, and go to their local theater and watch Superbad? Yeah. For God's sake, the things that they would say. Yeah. The, Can you imagine? I mean, it kind of paved the way for that. Um, Election Definitely. and American Pie, all these movies kind of paved the way for movies like um, Superbad and, like, most recently, this wasn't in high school, but uh, without these movies, a movie like Good Boys... Would never oh, have yeah. happened. Never yeah. have fucking happened. Yeah. Dude, it's it's amazing. Yeah. But, um, and I mean, if you even want to continue this conversation and go further back, what they're saying, what what I guess I find so funny is with all they're saying, well, this is going to be really edgy. This is going to be really, like, going to be weird to market. Did you not see Fast Times at Ridgemont High? There's a plot line about an abortion. There's full-on nudity. There's, like, from men and women. Like, there's all this shit going yeah. on. And that they think that this is super, like, whoa there, this is too much. It's like, did you not see it's what was, lot. like, being made 20 years ago? Like, I don't know. But. It's it's wild, man. Yeah. I think studio execs are in that weird group of people that are just, like, so in touch that they're out of touch. Yeah, you know what I that mean? Makes sense. You know people like that? Yeah. Like the people who are always wearing suits and carrying briefcases and flying around from place to place and eating at all the newest restaurants and all this shit. And then they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Yeah. It, I, I think that's exactly what it is. Yeah. 
But anyway, anyway, I'm digressing just a smidge. No, it makes sense. But in addition to being relatively groundbreaking, as far as what a high school movie can be, Election also accomplishes something somewhat unique from an adaptation standpoint. We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here because normally we'd be talking about this in the whole release and reception section towards the end, but it's important to mention that Election was nominated for and even won several awards for Best Adapted Screenplay. So Jim Taylor and Alexander Payne knew what they were doing. One of the reasons for this is likely that the movie is so faithful to the original novel, despite a few changes here and there. And according to Jim Taylor, quote, The book is written in a very distinctive form, which is first person for each of the characters, and I think it's about 16 characters in their mini chapters are headed with the characters' names. It's like Game of Thrones. Yeah. There aren't a lot of movies that do that, and thankfully that was signed off on by people at MTV and Paramount. But we obviously didn't want to do all those characters, so we just honed in on four of them. And per- So it's unlike Game of Thrones in that regard. Yeah. Well, Ga- Game of Thrones' first season, and then where it yeah. kind of focuses on four to six, and then it just gets fucking crazy. Um, exactly. But so Prada echoed Taylor's sentiment, noting that he was moved and thrilled when he saw the movie for the first time. According to Parada. I don't know that there's another movie that does multiple first-person voiceovers so elegantly and comically. So that's kind of a nice sentiment to know that your work wasn't butchered. Because, I mean, like, Stephen King has said for... He's seen a number of his books adapted, and there's ones where he loves something, he'll say it. But then if there's other ones, he's like, he's not shy by saying that he doesn't like The Shining. Yeah, but when you write 700 books a week, there's going to be some that suck. Fair point. Okay. You know what I mean? So, yeah. anyway. What, it's interesting, though, right? Because we've talked about this a little bit on the show before. But one of the reasons why this whole voiceover thing is so interesting is that studios typically, like, squash down the idea of having multiple yeah. narrators. Yeah, let alone Because they don't one. trust... Right. They don't trust the audience to understand that you're hearing from multiple different people. Because they think we're all stupid. Yes. And... Like, remember, right, that, like, even just one voiceover, like you said, is somewhat taboo to begin with. And so to start adding more and more and more onto that, you're making the studio go, hold on now, wait a second. (laughs) I'm capable of understanding one person's thoughts at a time. I can't handle four. (laughs) That's why three of my mistresses left, and I'm stuck with my wife. (laughs) Yeah, so Parada and the filmmakers were all justifiably concerned that Paramount was going to force them to make this difficult choice and pick just one. Um, this film is almost a, kind of experimental in a, in a way. Because like we said, it's taking this concept of the high school movie and it's making it not a high school movie and adding in all these other themes and all these different... and going to all these different places that a movie like this wouldn't. And then they're saying, okay, well, let's go a little further. Let's have voiceover, but let's have four different characters. Like it kind of breaks the rule of... It's one of those things where it breaks the rule of screenwriting, but it works really well. It does. Yeah. And it hap- that kind of thing happens a lot. Yeah. So. But Prada Very went on cool. to say, it really was an ensemble book with alternating narrators. And Alexander and Jim Taylor, his screenwriting partner, they just said, we're not picking. They're all the main characters. It isn't such an innovative novelistic structure, but it is a very... It is very unusual in film. And it's done so stylishly and with such comic genius. And that's why they got recognized for the best adapted screenplay. Yeah. Because this is arguably not the world's greatest screenplay. But to take what he was doing in that novel and translate it in a way that actually works and, like, keeps the intent of the novel, 
is something kind of special and unique. Yeah, it's pretty. And I think it was worthy of the recognition personally. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty damn awesome. Um, so let's go ahead and talk about the cast. Um, it's a pretty small cast for this. Like we said, there's there's four main characters that all, like we said, have narrations and um, you're in their heads. But at the same time, that's kind of like that's really who the movie focuses on. Um, so if you want to kick this off and you want to talk about Mr. Ferris Bueller himself. Yeah, let's do it. I'm going to talk about Matthew Broderick, awesome. who plays Jim McAllister. And uh, obviously, we all know that he was in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and we've talked about that already on this episode a couple of times. His breakout before Ferris Bueller's Day Off was War Games in 1983. And if you haven't seen that, you should. It's fucking awesome. He was also in Family Business. He played the angsty teen version of Simba in The Lion King. He was in The Cable Guy with Jim Carrey, which is another fucking fantastic movie. And he was in Godzilla, which was not. After this, uh, we're going to see him one more time again in 1999 for Inspector Gadget, which do you remember the uh, McDonald's toys for that Inspector Gadget movie, Jared? I do remember the McDonald's toys. And you had to collect all the pieces, and then you could build Inspector Gadget. Yep, Yep. it was the the corporate marketing I've got the complete one. It's great. (laughs) I spent so much money on Happy Meals. I mean, my parents did. I didn't know how to spend money when I was that age. But anyway... He was also in The Music Man, The Stepford Wives, Strangers with Candy, The Producers, Manchester by the Sea, and he's done some voice work on Adventure Time and on Rick and Morty nice. as well. So there you go. Um, as per usual, we've got a, a little bit of casting info for you about Matthew. Um, and like we usually do, we're talking about some of the people who may have played this character if Matthew Broderick didn't get it. And those people in this case were Tim Robbins, who was an early contender, as well as Tom Hanks and Tom Cruise, who were both considered for the role. Hmm. And either of those would have made this a very different movie. Yes. Um, Payne told the Huffington Post that Paramount wanted him to cast one of the Toms for the teacher role. And here's what Payne had to say about that. Quote, The one actor we all could agree upon, ultimately, was Matthew Broderick. I met with him, and he was only too happy to do the part, and I'm so glad he did. I never thought Tom Cruise would have been right for the part, Tom Hanks is a wonderful actor, but I knew at the time there was no way in hell he would take the part. <laughs> it just felt right that we eventually go to Matthew Broderick. And he was a great and meanwhile, fit for this movie. He was, right? And, and and meanwhile, Matthew Broderick's agent sent him the script and was like, this movie's going to either Tom Hanks or Tom Cruise, but I think you'd like it, so just read it for fun. And then he ended up getting it. So there you go. Nice. It worked out. Yeah. Uh, next up is one of my favorite actresses of all time. I've seriously not... Yet, even if the movie is bad, I've just not seen her in a bad role. Um, Miss Reese Witherspoon, uh, who plays Tracy Flick. Dude, the only thing better than her acting is her peanut butter cups. They're fucking fantastic. Her pieces are good as well. There it is. I was expecting you to go the without her spoon reference, but... No, that was no. That, always mixing it up and keeping me on my feet here. No, this is an intellectual <laughs> podcast here, and I had to go with an intellectual Reese Witherspoon joke. So she was in several movies prior to 1999, starting with The Man in the Moon in 91. However, her biggest movie leading up to election was Cruel Intentions, which we'll see this year in 1999. Um, we'll see her again on the pod for the Mike Barker crime thriller Best Laid Plans and Cruel Intentions. And of course, I mean, you know, her career's been okay. It, it's fucking taken off in such a crazy way. She's been in a shitload of movies, like American Psycho, Little Nicky, Legally Blonde 2 and 3, which was announced for 2022, 
Walk the Line, Water for Elephants, Inherent Vice, and she's appeared on TV quite a few times on shows like Friends, King of the Hill, uh, the um, and like this this list of three shows I'm about to read, I've seen all of them, and they're all fucking amazing. Big Little we get Lies, it, Jared, you have time to watch TV. Yeah. <laughs> Big Little Lies, Little Fires Everywhere, and The Morning Show. Um, go check. She likes to do work with little. Little, I was about to say. Yeah. We had Little Nikki, Big Little Lies, Little Fires <laughs> Everywhere. In terms of some casting stories that we got, here's some other people that were considered for this role. Um, Melissa Joan Hart actually auditioned for the role of Tracy Flick, um, which I think would have been interesting given that she was kind of a 90s character. Um, and Reese Witherspoon originally wanted to play Tammy Metzler. Um, according to an interview with her, she said, I read the script and I had seen Alexander Payne's first film, Citizen Ruth, at the Sundance Film Festival. I thought it was so hysterical and I loved his perspective. And then I went to audition for him. I remember he had a suit and tie on and I said, what's the occasion? And he said, it's Tuesday. But I just remembered the audition and I said, I don't know who you think you're, I don't know who you're thinking about for this part, but it's for me. And I think I had a little bit of Tracy Flick going on in the audition, but he ended up casting me. And nice. I think that's kind of a fun story. And so at Payne's suggestion, Reese Witherspoon actually went back to class and spent two weeks in Omaha hanging out with high schoolers pretending to be a transfer student, she says. In another interview, she said, It was really interesting because I was escorted by a girl very much like my character— president of the student council, captain of the volleyball team, head cheerleader, a total overachiever. The experience helped me to get back in the mindset of teenagers and empathize with their problems. That's hilarious, dude. Can you imagine? There's some guy there who's like stoned out of his fucking mind. And he's like, hey, dude, did you see the new chick in algebra? She looks just like the fucking girl from Good Intentions, bro. Cruel Intentions. Cruel Intentions? <laughs> so well uh, okay yeah she looks like that girl yeah. from uh good cruel intentions and then <laughs> spicoli you're wanted in class <laughs> oh sorry bro you're, i'm on my way anyway yeah so she she was a great uh she was a great fit for this role um who do we got next dude we have who i believe to be one of the more underrated actors in hollywood and that is chris klein who plays Paul Metzler. Uh, before this movie, he was in Jack Shit, and that's not the name of a movie. He was actually just not in anything other than high school theater and local theater productions in Nebraska. Election was his first movie. More on that in just a moment. After Election, he was in another 1999 movie that we mentioned earlier, American Pie, and he's been in a bunch of other stuff too, most notably Rollerball in 2002, and one of my favorite movies of all time, Just Friends, just Friends is which fantastic. came out in 2005. <laughs> He plays Dusty, and it's fucking amazing. Yeah. Uh, he's also done a lot of TV series and movies, including The Grinder and The Flash, among many others. This was Chris Klein's debut film. And what was going on was he was a senior at Millard West High School in Omaha, Nebraska, when he was discovered by Alexander Payne, while Alexander Payne was looking for a school to use for filming, even though another one was eventually used, and we'll talk about that later on. Here's a quote from Chris. Alexander Payne was scouting our high school as a location for election. Principal Dr. Rick Kolowski made sure that he introduced this Hollywood director to the resident theater guy, and I had made quite a name for myself from all the high school plays and then in the community theater. So he made that introduction, and a couple weeks later, Alexander Payne called me up at my folks' house and brought me in to audition for the movie. 
And so that's that's the story from Chris Klein's side. Yeah. Right. From Payne's side, it goes like this. Quote, a couple of months went by, months during which I returned to L.A., auditioned a bunch of potential Pauls, and I didn't like any of them. When you're trying to cast teenagers in Los Angeles, they all seem too polished, too old, too sophisticated. They don't feel like actual kids. So I went back to Omaha and called up the high school. I didn't remember the guy's name. I just described who he was. They got him a message. He met me at the office of the Omaha Film Commission, and that's how we discovered Chris Klein. <laughs> and so that's kind of funny because they did go with the polished Hollywood actress playing a teenager for Reese Witherspoon. But she's also supposed to seem too old, too polished, and too sophisticated yeah. in the movie. So I think it actually works really well for her character. Mm -hmm. And then they went with the unknown dude for Paul. And he's supposed to be kind of like the dumb small town guy anyway. So I think it works out so well. Yeah, it was awesome. But it almost didn't work out, Jared. Because when Klein read the script initially, he turned it down. Because there was a scene that he thought would upset his grandmother. That's so innocent. <laughs> and when they asked him about it. He said, quote, I can't have my grandma see me getting a blowjob. Yeah, fair, fair enough. enough. Totally fair enough. I don't even want my grandma to hear me say the word blowjob. Yeah. So I understand. Uh, but apparently Alexander Payne just laughed at him and said, okay, kid, listen, we'll take care of it. Just come and do the movie. Just trust me. Yeah. So I don't know what they did. I don't know if they put a bag over his grandma's head and threw her in the fucking river or what. But they did the scene. They took care of it. And we have Chris Klein in the movie. Yeah. So there we go. Next up, we have Jessica Campbell, who plays Tammy Metzler. Um, before this movie, uh, when she was 10, she was in a TV movie in 1992 called In the Best Interest of the Children. I didn't look up what that was. I have no idea what that film is. But there you go. She was in it. And that's literally it. Um, this was her second movie and her first theatrical movie. After this movie she was on two episodes of freaks and geeks and no shit yeah and she also appeared in the safety of objects dad's day and junk but that's it she stopped acting in 2002 and she has one credit as an assistant camera operator from 2003 it's actually interesting in the huffington post article we were referencing for researching um as one of our research tools it actually says that they tried to contact jessica campbell um, and they didn't get a hold of, they couldn't get a hold of her because she wouldn't return calls. She was adamant that she left the film industry. Um, I'd be wow. interested to hear if she had any stories. I hope it was like a good experience, but you know, I tried to do a little bit of digging and there's really nothing there. Yeah. And some people just go off the grid after it. They do it and they're like, yeah, I'm done. So, um, there's one kind of funny casting story, uh, for someone we've talked about on the show before. Uh, Thora Birch was originally cast as Tammy Metzler, who we know from American Beauty, and it's Halloween, so Hocus Pocus, definitely. It's pronounced Hocus Pocus. Ah, sorry. Um, yeah, I understand. But she was cast as Tammy Metzler originally, and she left filming in Omaha on her third day because of her creative differences with Alexander Payne. And that's all we know, but that's kind of interesting. Yeah. It would have been a She thought Tammy Metzler should have been a 48-year-old woman <laughs> who was going back to get her GED, and Alexander Payne disagreed with that. Yeah, well, there you go. That's not true. I made that up. <laughs> who do we have up next? I believe there's only one other, like, main cast member we have. Yeah, we have uh, Frankie Ingracia. Nice. But she plays Lisa Flanagan. And before this movie, she was in a bunch of video shorts, and I don't really know what that means called Secret Adventures, colon, 
And then there are several different ones. So there's Secret Adventures colon Spin, colon Snag, colon Smash, colon Shrug, and colon Slam. Which sounds like wrestling moves when I say colon in front of them. But you get what I'm trying to say. She also appeared on an episode of The X-Files. It was the one with all the rain, if you remember that one. Truth is out there. Yeah. Uh, You're right. It it is. (laughs) Um, After this... Frankie appeared alongside another famous Frankie Aha. when she was on an episode of Malcolm in the Middle. Nice. She was also on Monk, The Mentalist, Metalocalypse, which is a cool and random one, Grey's Anatomy, Bones, and a handful of other TV shows. So basically, she's been on every major network television awesome. show that's ever existed, and yet she's kind of a no-name actor. That's a so fun career to have. Those are the best it stories. Is. You're not huge, but you're in you're in that world, and you and if you don't like it, you're there for a day. And then you get to go right. to the next one. It's kind of awesome. It's like that guy who was in that thing. The, you know that documentary? Uh, that guy who was in that thing. And it's about actors like that who are in everything, but like no one knows what their names are. It's a good documentary. But there is one cool thing for me. She does the voice of the female creative skater in the video game Skate, nice. which is one of my favorite video games of all Very time. Nice. And I was overjoyed to learn that. And they're finally making Skate 4 so I can sleep at night again. Uh, she's also having her directorial debut this year with a movie called Vampire Dad that says it was released on June 16th, but I don't know if that's actually true because the Rona. So there you yeah. go. Um, as far as casting stories go, we got nothing. Yeah. So if you wanted to know more, you are shit out of luck. Yeah. Uh, we're going to name off a couple of additional cast members that were in this film. There was Phil Reeves, who plays Principal Walt Hendricks. You might recognize him from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. We've also got Molly Hagen, who's Diane McAllister, who you might know from iZombie. We have Colleen Camp, who's Judith Flick, known for Clue and for Wayne's World. We've got Nicholas D'Agosto, who plays Larry Fouch, and you might know him from Fired Up or Wait For It as Harvey Dent on Gotham. Nice. It all is connected. <laughs> Uh, Janine Jackson, who plays Joe Metzler from Gone. We've got Holmes Osborne, who plays Dick Metzler, who you would probably recognize as the dad in Donnie Darko. There you go. You know the, Dad, what's a fuck ass? Yeah. And then he like erupts with laughter. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> we also have Mark Herlick, who plays Dave Novotny, who you know from Jurassic Park 3 and The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. We've also got Delaney Driscoll, who plays Linda Novotny, who you probably don't recognize at all because she's only been in six movies and they all sucked, except for this one. Okay. And then finally, we have Matt Malloy, who plays Vice Principal Ron Ball from uh, Armageddon and that metal band we keep referencing, Drop Dead Gorgeous. Wait, he was in the band Drop no, Dead Gorgeous? No, he's in the movie from 1999. Oh, so. well, that's not as cool. That we should probably get permission from that band before we do that episode. Cause I feel like it's just, we're just going to be like, here's the episode. Here's dresses friend requests and just let it play. Can we just have them on? Let's just have them on. I thought about trying to get them as a guest. I think it'd be funny. I think we should do it. All right. Let's talk about um, filming the damn thing. Filming began on September 2nd, 1998, and wrapped on Halloween of 1998. Ooh. <laughs> Spooky, scary skeletons. <laughs> Despite a freak snowstorm that interrupted filming for a brief period of time. The film was primarily shot on location in and around Omaha, Nebraska, most notably in Papillion, Bellevue, and the Dundee neighborhoods. That's not a noise. <laughs> this is a noise. <laughs> That said, there were additional shots collected in New York City and in Washington, D.C. 
There were some minor scenes that were filmed at Yonkers in West Roads Mall, the Old Market, and the Henry Dorley Zoo and Aquarium. But of course, the most important filming location in this movie is G.W. Carver High School, which is actually Papillion La Vista Senior High School, located in Papillion, Nebraska. Now, if one of the 12 people living in Papillion, Nebraska is listening to us and we said the name of your town wrong, we don't fucking care because you live in a nothing nowhere town in Nebraska. That's not true. It is. I don't care. Maybe Jared does. I don't give a fuck. If submit a listener correction at 1999pod at gmail.com. Anyway, Alexander Payne originally wanted to use Omaha North High School, an older, more traditional looking school building. However, the Omaha Public School superintendent refused to let the production shoot at Omaha North after reading the script and deeming it inappropriate. It's funny. The studio is freaking out about what, what, what do our, um, like, they're thinking that it's an issue, and they're like, okay, we just got to get it past the studio heads. If the studio heads are cool with it, that'll be fine. And they're like, cool, we're going to start filming. Let's go to the high school. Wait, what? Fuck, they won't right. let us film? You've got, some, you've got some dipshit podunk town superintendent in Nebraska going, well, I don't want you filming that smut at my high-learning institution here in North Nebraska. So in an interview with the Huffington Post, Payne said, I toured almost every high school in Omaha and selected one high school and was forbidden to shoot there because the superintendent of Omaha Public Schools asked to read the script and was horrified by it. Just wait until he sees American Pie. He for- I picture him making the Hank Hill sound. He's like, he forbade my using any high school in the Omaha public school system because he said he would never have a student and a teacher having an affair and some of the immoral behavior he didn't want associated. So they're fine with the company slapping their name on the side of a refrigerator truck and driving around selling door-to-door steaks, but they're not okay with having a major Hollywood picture filmed in their little town. No. I don't know how they talk in Nebraska, by the way, so I'm just doing a different accent every time, hoping one of them's going to be right. So, Payne went outside the school district to Papillion, Nebraska, where he was allowed to shoot while school was in session. This gave the movie a fantastic sense of authenticity. For example, the yearbook office scene in a scene involving Tracy Flick is the real yearbook office for Papillion La Vista Senior High School. This flair for authenticity continued into other filming locations, too. For example, while they're shooting the scene where Jim is watching porn in the basement, the film crew left everything the real tenants of the house had in their basement. They only made room for the film equipment. The porn itself was also filmed at Papillion (laughs) High School because their superintendent didn't give a fuck what happened. That's not true. I made that up as well. All right. Well, I mean, that covers the filming locations, right? Should we just... uh meander on down the street towards production let's stores. do it let's go for it let's do so it i'll pass man. it off to you all right so just like like rick james or sia this movie had a lot of style mm-hmm. you like those two examples I like that those i picked out of my pop too, culture too, brain too yeah small yes two small examples but they work there we go so the film uses a number of stylized techniques in his storytelling particularly freeze frames flashbacks and voiceovers Obviously, none of these are very challenging techniques, and you don't need us to explain them to you because you know what they are. Uh, But I think it's worth taking some time to talk about how they work in the context of this movie. So I'm gonna. The first one I'm going to talk about is voiceovers, which we've mentioned a little bit before, right? 
Um, on previous episodes, we've talked about the fact that voiceovers can be kind of taboo and cringy. I still always think and, of that scene from Adaptation. God help you if you use voiceover in your work. <laughs> exactly. Exactly that, right? So the general consensus among filmmakers is this. Why have a character tell us about what's happening in voiceover when you can show us what's happening with visually interesting shots and action sequences? That's the the golden rule in filmmaking, right? But with that in mind, a lot of really, really good movies use voiceover. And I think it comes down to the fact that voiceover works when it has a good reason to be there. And it has a great reason to be there in election, right? One of the best things about this movie is the fact that it manages to develop four main characters in the span of just about an hour and a half or so, right? And what better way to learn about four different people than to hear them talk about themselves and talk about other people in their own words, right? The leads in this movie all speak in frequent, insightful voiceovers to explain their points of view. And it's great for characterization because we get to hear their voices and we get an idea for how they think about themselves. And ultimately, we're allowed to watch them and see if we agree with their own opinion of themselves. And with a character like Tracy, that makes the character that much deeper because you can see that she's thinking about herself in a way that we might not. And so is Jim, and so is Paul, right? All these different characters are thinking all these different things. And hearing directly from them does a lot of work in terms of characterization that we wouldn't get otherwise in an hour and a half. So I think that's a really useful tool. Yeah, There's a couple other things that are really um, stylized techniques that are used in this film. And there's another one that's kind of also kind of looked at as a taboo kind of narrative technique, and that is flashbacks. Election makes extensive uses of flashbacks, which are also primarily there to help us learn about the characters. And I think it's one of the most interesting things. I think one of the most interesting things about this movie is that it has a lot of really long flashbacks just straight out of the gate. Uh, For a more recent example of this, you could see Deadpool or Birds of Prey as big studio films that utilize this technique. Right. Big, long flashbacks right at the beginning of the movie. Mm -hmm. And then it about like twenty minutes, and it's like, okay, now we're back. And then it cuts back. That's how we got where we are today. Mm -hmm. And then the movie just rocks and rolls from there, right? It's kind of corny, but like it also works. Yeah, and like like you said, it it can work if it suits the story well. I think the reason why people don't like it is that it can be very disorienting. Yeah, because I start watching the present action. And then I go back to something that happened before. And I don't just like, I don't just take a glimpse. I, I stay with it for like 30 minutes. And then I come back to the present action. But it's like, that's a really long time for me to remember what I saw at the beginning of the movie. Exactly. Um, another thing that this movie iconically uses is freeze frames. The film's editor, Kevin Tent, used freeze frames with several of the characters in Election especially with Tracy. And one of the things that's so great about this movie is the way that they chose to use these the most unflattering freeze frames for the characters. This kind of subverts the usual way in which the technique is used. It also helps us get greater insight on how the characters in this movie see one another. For Right, because you'd usually pick a really flattering still of somebody exactly freeze frame so like for example tracy may project confidence and some wide-eyed innocence but these freeze frames just show the ugliness that lies below the surface um on all of these characters 
Um, but Payne discussed this technique and said the following. Finding the most unflattering freeze frames, particularly on Reese, just came between editor Kevin Tent and me in the cutting room. It's both funny that you would pick the freeze frame that normally everyone else would reject because it's so unflattering, and also it seemed appropriate that Jim McAllister would focus on a very unflattering aspect of Tracy Flick. And if you haven't seen the movie, essentially what they're doing here is like when you take a video of one of your friends and you pause it when they're making like a weird eyes half closed, yeah. half open, tongue out kind of face, and you screenshot that and you make it their contact photo in your phone. Exactly. That's basically what they're doing in the editing room on this movie. They go, all right, that's the one. She looks like shit. We're going to yeah. use that. <laughs> and Reese Witherspoon had her own opinions of Payne's decision to include a freeze frame of Tracy with a contorted face. She said, the freeze frames were news to me. When I saw the movie, I was in shock. That's even fucking funnier. Yeah. So, as it is, I don't pass this off to you. There, there were some very big style choices with this film, but there were also some interesting directorial cues. Yeah, that's, that's right. So... This was only Alexander Payne's second major motion picture like we talked about. So we didn't really know it yet. But one thing is for certain. He knows what he's doing when it comes to directing. And it, for evidence of that, every movie he's made since election has earned at least one of the actors in it an Oscar nomination, except for downsizing. Because you don't get Oscars for lines like, what kind of fuck you give, which is one of the lines from Downsizing. <laughs> um, but like most major directors, Payne's a little bit quirky. And thanks to Reese Witherspoon, we've got a couple of firsthand accounts about Payne's unique directorial style on set. So for starters, Payne was known for making a ton of animal analogies. So he wouldn't just tell you how to walk down the hallway. He'd say something like, okay, you're going to walk through the hall like a panther. <laughs> and if you're watching this movie, you don't really think about anybody walking anywhere like a panther. So it's kind of a funny direction to give. Other times, he'd provide directions that felt kind of out of place for a high school comedy movie. So, for example, one of the scenes was the one in which, spoiler alert, Tracy tears down all the election posters. And here's what Reese Witherspoon had to say about that. Quote, Alexander wanted me to make this face like something out of Psycho. I go to the bathroom afterward, and I'm just scrubbing my hands like Lady Macbeth. And he says, I want you to lean against the wall, and I want you to melt like Janet Lee in Psycho. And all I could think was that this was really funny. <laughs> I always laughed at his directions because he's a really funny guy. And... On the surface, that might not seem very funny, but the tone of this movie and the tone of Psycho are so fucking different that that's really out of and left And the field. scene that he's telling her to reenact, it, like, if I'm correct, it's the scene where she dies and she's sinking yeah. down the, the, the shower. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you know what, though? It works. Yeah. And there's a lot of Psycho, like, faces and zoom-ins and shit in this movie. Yeah. So he's doing something right, yeah. right? But his analogies didn't just stop at animals either. He'd occasionally instruct Witherspoon to behave like an inanimate object. And here's another quote from Reese Witherspoon. One scene I remember doing was when she realizes she won. The moment was like an eighth of a page, and it said Tracy realizes that she won and celebrates silently to herself. And Alexander said, why don't you actually jump up and down? So I started jumping up and down. No, no, put your legs together. I want you to jump up and down like you're a human pogo stick. And I'm going, really? And in that scene, it's just a hysterical yeah. <laughs> thing. And it's, I mean, that's fucking weird, dude. Like, good directors say weird shit. And that's how they get what they want. And I think this is a great occasion of that. But I also think that this is a really interesting opportunity to talk about something 
that some people might not realize about screenwriting, which is that there's often not a lot of direction on the page because the director is one person with one job and the writer is a different person with a different job, right? And so like Reese Witherspoon said, the screenplay only says, Tracy realizes that she won and celebrates silently to herself. That's what the writer puts. It's up to the director. It's up to the actor. It's up to a bunch of other people to figure out what that actually looks like. And so these directions are very important. Another way that you can think about this is to think about an action movie, right? Where there's these really long fight scenes. Think back to James Bond, which we covered on the podcast, right? There's not six pages of narrative in a screenplay describing exactly what's going on at any given time in that fight scene. There's a single line on one page that says they fight. And then there's a shitload of other people who figure out what that fight looks like. The director, choreographers, actors, everybody but the writer basically is figuring out what that looks like. Yeah, it's kind of like with The Matrix, that whole sequence where Neo leans back and then the bullets are going by him. That whole, Which I think that sequence is probably like 15 seconds, but it just says two words, bullet time. And then yep. that's the. There's no direction on that. There's no. Neo leans back and dodges each of the bullets one by one in this. Weir- it just says bullet time. That's it. Yep. That's it. And obviously, Election is not an action movie. No. And those gaps between the script and the screen aren't as big, but they are just as important. And as the film's writer and director, Payne was really aware of that gap because he's the person who was thinking about this originally in his head, right? So. He had a couple of really interesting quotes related to this that I wanted to read. So I'm going to because I fucking can. So (laughs) once when Payne was asked if a director should also know how to write and edit, Payne said, quote, writing and editing aren't support skills. They are the job. You can't become a director until you master the art of screenwriting. If you want to make narrative films, you're going to have to write for yourself. You're making a film in your brain and a screenplay is the written record of your imagination. He went on to say, It's normal to overwrite. You can never foresee exactly what you'll need to omit in the cutting room, which is why it's all about editing. The only reason I write and direct is to get material to edit. And editing is just the ongoing process of disguising how bad the film really is, (laughs) which is kind of a funny tag. But the point here is that there's really nothing to lose by telling Reese Witherspoon to do weird shit like jump up and down like a pogo stick. Because if it doesn't work, you can cut it. But if it does work... It might be brilliant and it might make the final movie, right? So I, I think this speaks really well to the process of writing and directing and editing and all of that stuff. And that's why I wanted to talk about yeah. it. Going back to something you said about how good directors give weird directions. Um, sometimes those directions end up producing great results. Sometimes they get actors into trouble. Sometimes they do both at the same time. So one of Payne's directions almost got one of the characters in this movie in trouble with the White House. Um, And it's funny because it's not that bad compared to the trouble that is currently going on in the White House. We have an election in, uh, what is this, coming out on Friday? That'll be one, two, four four days. They know about the election, Jared. We've talked about it 15 times. I'm going to say it again. Vote. Don't vote. I want to stay. I don't want to (laughs) leave. Don't vote. Let me stay. And you know that he's saying that right now. But so I'm already used to the bed. I don't want to get another one. <laughs> I have trouble sleeping in a new place. If we let you take the mattress, will you leave? I'll think about okay. it. Okay. In- Did you read the art of the deal? 
<laughs> well played. Um, in the film's final scene, Matthew Broderick throws a Pepsi at the back window of a limo that Tracy's riding in, which is a very funny scene. And when the limo screeches to a halt, he runs away. I mean, where is she really trying to get to anyway? And what is she doing in that limo? Who the fuck does she think she is? It turns out that maybe this wasn't the best idea. In an interview with the Huff Post, Broderick recalled that one time we did it and I ran into this park that was across the street from the White House. And Alexander says, just keep running. I'll film it and maybe that would be a funny ending. Just have this guy running into a park scared. But just run as far as you can. Apparently, Broderick kept running and soon he was closing in on the White House. Then he started to notice that random homeless guys and dog walkers were looking at him and coming toward him. It turns out there's a lot of undercover Secret Service people in that park, dressed as bums and random park goers, and they weren't thrilled about this random man running full throttle towards the White House. <laughs> I that's an amazing I'd story. I'd be worried too. So it's so great. Yeah. And then they're like, you know, they're on their radios and they're going, yeah. Um, I I think Ferris Bueller is a terrorist. And then someone inside's like, uh, I'm sorry, come again. Yeah. What'd you say? <laughs> Uh, Ferris Bueller, he's he's running towards the the White House. He's ran towards the yeah. White House nine times. Just hear that bow, off bow. in the distance, very subtly. Yeah, there was actually they cut this from the movie, but there was part where he ran up a slide and then he jumped over the White House fence and jumped off a trampoline, and then he ran across the White House lawn, and then Ivanka was outside sunbathing and he stopped to be like, "Hey, Hi, how Ferris you Bueller," and then he Ferris kept Bueller, going. How you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what happened. Well, it's clear that Payne knew how to get the most out of his actors. There were a lot of people in this movie who were not actors at all. Kind of referencing something we said earlier about how he was shooting while school was still in session, making use of the locations dressed as they were. This movie was filmed in a small town without a massive Hollywood presence. And because of that, there wasn't a surplus of extras you'd like to find on mo- you'd likely find on most Hollywood movie sets. So as such, Payne filled the screen with the real people he had on hand. So in the gym scenes, for example, many of the extras were actually high school students at Papillion La Vista Senior High School. Now, at first, you might think that sounds like an ideal situation. You've got a bunch of real-life teenagers to fill in your shot in a high school movie and make it look like an authentic school rally. Great. But there was a bit of a problem. Oh. One, it was SAT season and many of the students weren't available. And on top It's it's Nebraska. They're not gonna pass the SATs. They can be in the fucking Well, movie. we can never tour Nebraska with this podcast if that ever happens, but anyway. I don't want to. But they have corn. <laughs> I forgot who I was talking to, that was brilliant. On top of that, many of the students had found that working as an extra was actually pretty fucking boring. And yeah, it kind of is, but you yeah. get to be on a movie set. To account for the shortage of available students, Payne asked the extras to move two or three times, which would allow the filmmakers to edit the shots later and make it appear as though there were more people in the gymnasiums. However, when that still wasn't cutting it, school administration stepped in to help. So apparently... The principal was a big proponent of the arts, and he called an assembly during school hours so that Payne would have enough students in the gym to capture the shot scene. That's pretty cool. Can you imagine the fucking heart attack 
that the superintendent of North Omaha Public Schools would have had if this was happening on one of his campuses. But so this wide shot, which captures both sides of the gym simultaneously, was done in less than 20 minutes during the assembly. And according to Payne, this is again how lovely the principal and administration were. They called an assembly during school just so I could get that shot. But that's awesome. That that's really that's awesome. Great. And even so, there are some extras in the gymnasium scenes, even in the wide shots. If you look closely, you can see that some of the students in the background are clearly adults. In one of the shots, there are even two or three boys with full beards in the front row. <laughs> but with all that being said, there are some real-life Nebraskans with somewhat larger roles in this movie. The Spanish teacher was actually a Spanish and French teacher where and when director Alexander Payne attended high school. And Lauren Nelson, who played the custodian in the movie, was actually a custodian at Dutchinese Academy in Omaha, Nebraska, but he has since retired. From acting or from janitorializing? I, I think from janitorializing. Okay. Well, good for him either way. He deserves to rest. He did a good yeah. job. He had, he had one of the but, best reveals of that movie. <laughs> he yeah. did. But you know what, Jared? Those actors weren't the only authentic things in this movie. What else? Some of the sound was authentic as mm-hmm. well. Because the movie was shot in a real high school during the academic year, some of the classrooms adjacent to Mr. McAllister's room had real classes going on during filming. And if you listen closely, you can hear some background noises coming from real teachers and students having class in those classrooms. And most directors would probably say, let's get rid of that shit. But instead of doing that, Payne decided to leave them in as a way to give the movie a more realistic feel. And I think it does have a pretty spot-on high school feel. But... As if the students and the setting and the audio weren't enough, even Matthew Broderick's pee is authentic. (laughs) Yep, that's right. There's a scene in the movie where Matthew Broderick is pissing on a tree after sleeping in his car outside of a woman's house all night, which sounds as creepy as it is. And believe it or not, Matthew Broderick actually urinated against the tree in the scene outside of Linda's house. So there we go. But while that was real... Was this fucked up eye reel? No. Oh. No, it wasn't. Oh, it wasn't. It was fake as fuck, huh. Jared. It's fake news. The eye was not real. So, the you if you've seen the movie, you may recall that he has kind of a fucked up eye in the movie. While this movie is obviously in a different tier than, say, Virus when it comes to, like, practical effects and makeup, Matthew Broderick's swollen eye does look pretty fucking gnarly in some of these scenes. We don't, we don't know how they do it. it look, his eye looks swollen. He was stung by a bee, but he wasn't really stung. We don't know how they do it. It's, it just he closes his eye, opens it. It looks fucked up. I don't know. More than that, though, the eye looks really convincing. But looking into that a little bit further, it's not much of a surprise. And that's because of Cass McClure, who was heading up the prosthetics for this movie. And I get excited when I read this list that I'm about to read. But for most people, makeup technicians aren't exactly household names. But you got to trust us when we say that if you've seen any movie in the last 30 years, almost anything, you've seen her work. She's handled makeup and prosthetics on countless projects, including Dustin Checks In, which maybe you've heard of, maybe haven't. But Hellraiser, Bloodline, Godzilla, Nutty Professor to the Clumps. Best movie on the list. You can stop right <laughs> How there. How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Planet of the Apes, The Village, Fantastic Four, 300, Tropic Thunder, Black Panther, Uncle Drew, Avengers Endgame. She's a pretty fucking big deal. 
things. Yeah, that's a lot of good yeah. stuff. And she did a lot of planning to get Broderick's bee sting right in election. According to Broderick, he said, I had three or four levels of how swollen my eyes should be. And she had three or four latex molds made. And they would glue on the swollen eye. I had a slightly swollen one, a just stung one, etc. When it was most swollen, I couldn't actually see out of that eye. Which is kind of funny. But he said, while the makeup was very well planned out, it was pretty darn uncomfortable. In this same quote, he says, And it's uncomfortable to have something over your eye all day. I remember Alexander and I wondering how much it would hurt. Should I be screaming or just say, ow? So we tried to find the correct level of a bee sting on the eye. I think my first instinct was to have a huge conniption, and he told me to calm down. See, I think this is where we learn that Matthew Broderick is in a different tier of actor than, say, a Leonardo DiCaprio or a Daniel Day-Lewis. Because your Daniel Day-Lewis would have actually been stung by a bee in his eye to know exactly how painful it was. And then he would have acted accordingly. Yeah. So you can tell that Matthew Broderick is just phoning it in throughout <laughs> the entire movie. All right, so the last thing that I want to talk about production stories-wise has to do with the music in this movie and how we ended up with some of the tracks that we got. One of those tracks in particular. So the score in Election was handled by a guy named Rolf Kent, who has written and composed music for all kinds of Hollywood movies, including, but not limited to, Citizen Ruth, which was Alex Payne's first Mm -hmm. movie, Legally Blonde, which also starred Reese Witherspoon, 40 Days and 40 Nights, which is a ridiculous movie with a ridiculous premise. Freaky Friday, which is also ridiculous, but in a much better way. Mean Girls, because he just liked putting music behind Lindsay Lohan's actions. Sideways, Wedding Crashers, Zoolander, and a bunch of other comedies. So this guy is pretty comedy focused. And for that reason, I think he's a pretty underrecognized composer. And I say that because he's worked on a bunch of excellent shit. But because his movies aren't like big blockbuster dramas, he's not a household name like Elfman or Zimmer or Williams, mm-hmm. right? But he's, you've definitely heard his music if you've watched movies in the last 30 years. So he's great. And he did the score for Election. But there was apparently quite a bit of push and pull between Payne, Kent, the record label, and the studio, MTV Films. Here's what happened. The record company that MTV Films had brought onto the picture wanted to have a lot of rock songs, which makes sense. MTV is first and foremost a channel for popular music and rock music was popular in the late 90s, right? So we can see what's going on here from a sales perspective. But that made for a bit of a difficult situation. MTV and the record label both wanted the movie to be jam-packed with rock songs, a lot more than we have in the final product. And in Payne's own words, quote, I remember the fight I had to go through to have the opening credits have score, not a rock song. It was de rigueur for movies to have some kind of rock song in the opening credits and end credits. I had to tell them I'm making a motion picture, not a jukebox. And so good for Payne for fucking sticking up for what he believed in. I agree with that, but I do feel like that sounds like an old-timey answer. I'm making a motion picture, not a jukebox? Whatever 45 the kids are listening to these days, I'm not buying it. (laughs) But see, the problem (laughs) there is like, let's say that you've made, most of us have done this, you're making just a, a shitty little movie with iMovie on your phone, okay? Yeah. You've got four songs that you can choose from as the backing track for your little movie. Do you want to use any of those four songs? Probably no. not, right? And so Payne's getting into a similar situation where he's making this hugely creative thing, and they go, 
okay, you can pick any music you want to give your movie the right look and feel as long as it's one of these 15 songs. And maybe one of those 15 songs doesn't fit there. Right? So I can totally understand where he's coming from. It is a little curmudgeon maybe, but I get it, right? Like, I'm the artist. I have my vision, you know? So anyway, while Payne and Kent eventually struck a balance with the studio and the record label, there was one song that Payne insisted appear in the movie, and that song was Navajo Joe by Ennio Morricone. So that song originally appeared in a spaghetti western by the same name, Navajo Joe, in which a Native American warrior named Navajo Joe, big surprise there, seeks revenge on a gang of sadistic outlaws who have massacred his tribe. Very cool, right? Like, that's a fucking kind of premise. It's great. Really not very similar to the movie Election at (laughs) all, though. So how did we get from there to here? Well, in Election, the song is actually played three separate times. Once when Tracy realizes for the first time that Paul is running for president, again in the scene where Tracy has just ripped down her own campaign poster and is staring angrily at Paul's, thinking about doing the same thing, and a third time when Tracy sees Tammy and Mr. McAllister pulling the crumpled campaign posters out of Tammy's backpack in his office. So those are our three times that we hear this song. And it's funny how it ended up in the movie, because originally Payne and his editing team dubbed Navajo Joe into these scenes as a joke, mainly because they felt the scream at the beginning of the song perfectly encompassed Tracy's inner rage in each of those three moments. However, they eventually realized that the song actually fit really well in those (laughs) scenes, and it was kind of funny. The other cool thing was that it fit with the internal voiceover technique they've been using because it kind of doubles as the scream that Tracy's making in her own head, which is kind of fun, right? Like, a real person would maybe have that reaction of like, fuck, this moment reminds me of this song, right? And so they they managed to mimic that feeling really well, I think. But on the other hand, the music also helps to make Tracy more likable because you can really feel the pain that she's experiencing when you hear that wail at the beginning of the song. So after a few tussles with the studio execs, they were able to keep the song in the soundtrack. And this is a fun side note, but if that song, Navajo Joe, sounds familiar to you, it's probably not from this movie. It's most likely because you recognize it from the end of Kill Bill Volume 2. But that came out in 2004. So technically, Payne beat Tarantino to the punch. And according to Payne, quote, Tarantino told me later, oh, I always wanted to use actual spaghetti western music. You hear stolen spaghetti western music earlier than you do in any Tarantino film, and I got there yeah. first. So there That's you go. true. I think Tarantino uses it in like a very serious way, but yeah. in this in this kind of thing, it's it's kind of ironic that he beat him to the punch. So it is in his second movie. Yeah, exactly. And Tarantino's like this son of a bitch. <laughs> I've been thinking about using Navajo Joe in one of my movies for years, and then this motherfucker comes along and he puts it in his second fucking movie, and then everyone thinks it's the fucking best thing in the world. How the fuck did you do that? That is a great Tarantino impression. Thank you. That is a good, like, oh my God, that's awesome. Um, <laughs> wow, that made my night. Um, so there are some <laughs> transition from that. that. You're really good at impressions. Um, Thank you. So, okay. This is the part where we usually talk about symbols, metaphor, symbolism, metaphors, and illusions. So there's some fun little nods for the people who are paying attention throughout this film. 
So if you're looking closely, there's text in a newspaper article that's shown in the film. And it says, if you look closely enough, if you pause the film in order to read this entire article, your time would be better spent renting Citizen Ruth from your local video <laughs> store. Do you know how hard it is to write these fake few stories for newspaper movie props? I've got better things to do, which is <laughs> fucking amazing. Fucking amazing. Dude, I love it. That's like a Monty Python that, kind of yeah, detail. Yeah, exactly. That's, a, That's great. That's great. When Paul is called into the office to be told the truth about the election, his Spanish class is conjugating the verb perder, meaning to lose. See, that's funny because I always thought perder meant to purd. <laughs> and when Tracy wonders what Dave is up to since being fired, we see him working at the same store that Kurtwood Smith worked at in Citizen Ruth in 1996. He's also seen putting price stickers on the same cans of patio sealant that Ruth huffed right before getting arrested in Citizen Ruth. But our podcast is... So we have a shared universe? Possibly. Another view of universe. Whoa. <laughs> um, there's also a lot of apples in this movie. Why? Because like horses and Steve Jobs, teachers love apples. It's true. And, oh, and because apples actually represent a loss of innocence. Oh, yeah, that makes more sense, actually. And the characters in this movie are far from innocent. Apples are featured prominently in the movie, usually before trouble arrives for a character, which I didn't even notice until you pointed this out to me. So, for example, there you go. they're used as an analogy to entice Paul Metzler to enter the election. An apple... Tr- and as we all know, because we've all read the Bible, like good little Nebraskans do... Eve is enticed with an I'm apple. waiting for some very angry Nebraska letters, but um, an apple tree is shown before Mr. McAllister is stung by a bee, and by the way, those apples are actually tied to the tree branches in that scene. Production value. Apples... That's true. Also, Jared, you don't need to worry about Nebraska letters because people from ah, Nebraska don't, can't fuck write. Ah, oh, damn it. <laughs> God. Because they spend all their time when they're supposed to be in school in assemblies filming fucking movies. <laughs> Apples hang above the doorway to Mr. McAllister's living room right before he discovers his wife knows he cheated on her. And Mr. McAllister wins the Apple Teacher of the Year Award at the beginning of the movie. That's a lot of apples. Yeah, it is. Apples. Apples. Fine. Let's say all you ever knew were apples. Apples, apples, and more apples. You might think apples were pretty good, even if you got a rotten one once in a while. But then one day... There's an orange, and now you can make a decision. Do you want an apple, or do you want an orange? That's democracy. I also like bananas. Exactly. Good. You know what I don't know, though, Jared? Hmm. Is why do they call them Apple Jacks if they don't taste like apples? I don't know. That question was never answered for me as a child, and I feel question still never been answered for me, so... All right, with that out of the way, let's move on to the last part of this show, talking about the release and reception. So the first thing that we want to talk about is test screenings. And there were test screenings for this movie, and there was one major change that happened as a result of those test screenings that I think is worth talking about. So Executive producer Van Toffler and the other filmmakers read every single note card that they got from every person who went into the test screenings, and it turned out that there was a bit of a problem, and that's that audiences didn't like the ending of the movie. Originally, the ending was closer to the novel, 
featuring Mr. McAllister working at a car dealership and Tracy going to visit him before she leaves for college. When she goes, Tracy asks Mr. McAllister to sign her yearbook, and then she confesses that she has some fears about going off to college, and he consoles her, and he apologizes for sabotaging her election. It's very sweet. It's very nice. It doesn't make sense. According to Alexander Payne, quote, The movie mined the novel for more outrageous and subversive humor. I think the audience felt, and we the filmmakers too, that the rather melancholy ending did not seem totally in keeping with the very funny, subversive movie which preceded it. So it's kind of tonally inaccurate. Yeah. Compared to everything else that you've just seen. And it's kind of ironic because Matthew Broderick stated the following regarding the test screenings. When they were, this was in this same article right when they were talking about it. He had a different experience. He said, I saw a test screening with the little audience, maybe at a studio in LA. I remember I was watching it and the audience seemed to be really liking the movie. And then at the ending, it felt right, like it was lifting everybody into a nice way to leave the theater. So I remember watching it and thinking it looked right and that it seemed to keep everyone at a high. Which is interesting. Of course Matthew Broderick would say that. Because it makes his character look good. It's the only thing in the movie that makes his character look good. And they fucking got rid of it. So of course he would say that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. But anyway. He should have locked the garage. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what if that's how it ended? You killed the car. The movie just ends with him driving away in the car. You're still here? The movie's over. <laughs> they should have done that. Go dude. home. They should have done it. They should have done it. <laughs> anyway. But, okay. We're digressing yes. quite a bit. But, hey, fuck it. It's our yeah, podcast. we can do whatever we, we want. Yeah. Anyway, the test scores weren't the only problem because the filmmakers themselves were unhappy with the way they'd wrapped up the movie, too. Writer Jim Taylor clarified what they meant by that. And he said, quote, It was partially motivated by test scores, but it wasn't really like people didn't like the movie. It was more a sense on all of our parts, an agreement that we could do better. It was more about us than about the audience. So, faced with this less than stellar feedback from the test screening audience, as well as their own hangups about the movie, the filmmakers approached Paramount regarding the prospect of a reshoot, which is sometimes a very naughty word in the studio system yeah. because it costs money and it takes time and it makes things be delayed. Just ask Zack like Snyder that. right now. HBO's probably... Nah, it, actually, HBO's like about to make the most money they've ever made in their lives with this. Nobody can go to a theater, Jared. HBO will put anything on. Very true. Anyway, continue. Including Zack Snyder's fucking weird dark home movies or whatever the hell it is. The four-hour Snyder cut. But anyway... They had to try to do a reshoot, and that meant that they had to go through Sherry Lansing, the woman who had been the CEO of Paramount Pictures at the time. Luckily for Payne and his buddies, Lansing was no stranger to reshoots. In fact, she was already sort of famous in Hollywood circles, or infamous maybe, for having reworked the ending of Fatal Attraction. Hmm. And that was a good redo, because the original ending of that movie sucked, and then they made it really yeah. great. This one's a bit of a different situation, because the end was fine, but then they made it incrementally better i would say so it's less of a of a big edit but she was also really really into the movie election and she believed in Payne's vision for it and this is a somewhat long quote from lansing but i think it's worth sharing the whole thing because she says some insightful shit so here we go my feeling is that alexander watched the film with an audience and felt that what he wanted to get out there wasn't getting out there the studio was in love with this movie. I was willing to put the extra money in to allow him to have his vision. It's what makes it the classic it is. The process is always to put it in front of an audience and you listen to what they say. 
we were willing to put whatever amount of money was necessary to allow the film to be everything that he and all of us wanted it to be because we believed in it so much, and that belief has been justified. It certainly didn't do $100 million or whatever the magical number is, but it never was supposed to. This was a small film done at a modest price. That money was justified because it's become a classic film. And I think that that is a really, really one impressive outlook for a studio exec yeah. to have because I think nowadays it's it's not like that anymore. Um, but two, I think that's a really succinct description of what happened, right? It's like we got this feedback. The director wasn't happy with it. We all thought that this was a great movie and we did what we had to do to make it happen. You're never going to hear an exec at Paramount today say we're going to throw as much money as you want at this low budget movie to make it seem good. Yeah, I feel like, I almost feel like that attitude in this situation should be adapted by it never will be but it should be and 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 i say that because there's so much content out there and there's we're now in the middle of the streaming wars you have you back then it was like i say back then 10 years ago it was just netflix and then maybe hulu but Hulu was just putting on and had made deals with certain TV channels to just rerun episodes of their shows. Now, yeah, Hulu was like, did you miss King of Queens last night? Exactly. Uh, this is pretty much what it was. Um, but now Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, uh, HBO Max, Disney Plus, Peacock. Like there's all of these channels that are all coming out. They're putting out and collecting libraries of content and producing their own series and movies. And people will, like, you can go, hey, did you watch this? My answer is most of the time going to be no, because I'm still behind on, like, all the other fucking things I have to watch. Right? It's all these things, they need time to develop and sit with people, particularly if it's a series that you're going to put up and then it's going to be digested quickly or a movie that's going to be like, okay, here, here's the movie. It's just up here. Like, this instant gratification model, it it's good for certain things, but it's not good for people being... Like, you need to let certain films age. And you need to let... It's it's like wine. Like fine exactly. wine. Exactly. You have to let certain things... Like, there's... Um, I've heard people... I mean, this is a, a perfect example, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, but movies that don't do well when they're released, and then for whatever reason, whether it's on streaming or it it becomes popular again over time because more people watch it they get into that it's that right place right time moment but people catch on and go oh this is really good arrested development is a perfect example of that that show was canceled after three seasons because people like and nobody's watching it it's not funny netflix put it on as one of its like hey we're adding content to try to build our library watch this and everybody was like shit, this is really funny. Why did I not watch this like five years ago? Because it aged really well and it ended up being funny. That's exactly right. So the Hollywood movie system is exactly like the prison industrial complex. uh, Okay. Um, Because like prisoners, uh, mm, there are movies that get out and they don't do well right away. They struggle for Uh, a while. And then eventually they get on their feet and then they get discovered maybe and they start to do really well. Is that the point you're trying to make, Jared? Because that sounded like exactly what you said in your Okay, own let's words. just talk about the reshoot. Um, okay, let's Or do in it. this case, a recount. God 
Damn it, Jerry, that yeah. was good. So after more than a year after so more than a year after principal photography had been completed, it was time to dust off the cameras and reshoot the ending. So Payne and Taylor rewrote the end, and they were just about ready to go, but there was one more minor issue. Matthew Broderick, having a busy year, was already hard at work on the set of another movie that we're going to be talking about on this podcast. Inspector Gadget. So according to Payne, he said, quote, We had to wait for Matthew, who was shooting Inspector Gadget. That was in the middle of 1998. We had to wait for him to finish that, and then we did our additional shooting in November or December of 98. And then the film came out in April of 99. So when Broderick was finished defeating Dr. Claw, um, the ending of Election was reshot. (laughs) And the ending we see on screen today is just as bleak as the rest of the film. But... Gadget... I will prevent you from doing the reshoots <laughs> to election. I, don't, I definitely don't think the movie went like that, if I remember it correctly. I didn't see it. I just collected the McDonald's yeah. toys as we I, remember, I, I owned it. I remember seeing it. Um, however, if you're curious to see what the original ending was, there is, as Andrews used to describe this, a potato quality version of the original ending floating around on YouTube. Yeah, it was filmed on a spud for sure. So, according to the person who uploaded the clip, it was actually found in a box of yard sale VHS tapes. So, finally, since this is an adaptation and the original deleted ending was closer to the source material, we'd like to take a second to mention what the novelist, Tom Parada, had to say about the changed ending. Quote, The things writers are scared about is that Hollywood is going to defang their story and put a happy ending on something that wasn't happy. In fact, what happened in Election was that a darker ending got put on my material. But what's important to know is that the original script followed closely the plot of the book, and it was actually filmed. It was only later, when I think they had a test screening, I don't know all the details, but people didn't like the ending. And then it took a long time for Alexander and Jim to rewrite the ending and come up with one that's there now i didn't feel betrayed i didn't feel at all betrayed by that i was aware of the process and that they tried to faithfully film the plot of the book from what i heard it just didn't work and that's dude this movie was made with the most agreeable fucking I was about people to say on the planet dude like this guy's like yeah i get it that's cool just do what you got was it made do. in canada and then the the filmmakers like, yeah, you can have more money and do a reshoot. I don't give a fuck. And then the principal of the school is like, yeah, I'll call the kids out of class and we'll just bring them in here so you can get the shot you want. Like everybody except for that fucking superintendent of North Omaha schools is super nice. Which is ideally what you want for this movie. And a lot of people, a lot of the critics really loved this movie. But unfortunately, the box office didn't agree. I kind of imagine it looked like the with the opening of this movie... I kind of imagine it looked like the opening scene where Tracy's all set up. She's waiting to talk to everybody, but there's just no one fucking walking through the halls or taking interest. That's exactly what yeah. it was like. That's a perfect way to describe it. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. So the budget for this movie was like $25 million. And against that budget, it only grossed $17.2 million. So you don't have to be a mathematician to realize that that's in the yeah, red. that's not good. And one of the reasons for that was marketing. So it became pretty clear to the filmmakers that both Paramount and MTV had no fucking clue how to market this movie. They didn't know if they should make it a high school film or an adult film or whatever. It wasn't Varsity Blues. It wasn't American Pie. More on those later this year. 
It was something totally different. And according to Toffler, in an article from Huffington Post, this is what was going on. Quote, It was really hard for the studio to try to tackle it because it was definitely more complex than a typical high school movie. We tried to focus on the relationships of the characters. At the time, there were campaigns around the rating system and marketing our movies to kids. They changed a lot of the rules and regulations on TV, so there was a lot of concern. We should have respected the intelligence of the high school audience, but it was tough to market to them directly because of a bunch of the swirl around DC that was going on. So clearly, it was a complicated situation. There was a lot of politics at play, no pun intended. They were having a hard time figuring out what to do. Yeah, if I recall as well, like this is around the time that there's this film came out only a few days after Columbine, if I remember that. And this isn't to be a bummer, but this is like to talk about like there was this even before that, there's this conversation of what's what's corrupting America's youth? Uh what's this and that? And then you see like, well, I mean, the president's dropping bombs in other countries, there's this whole blowjob scandal. It's the movies. Well, okay, let's maybe take that. But, like, what about real life? What about the influence? It's South Park. That's what's doing it to our kids. Okay, maybe. So there's, like, this whole conversation that's going on about in Washington, D.C., about what's corrupting America's youth. And yep. what should, when it's it's really kind of like life. Um, but, of course, everybody's taking aim at the easiest thing to do, which is entertainment. Right. And and so on top of all that complicated political sensitive bullshit that was going on, Payne also recalled that the studio made what he referred to as, quote, the worst trailer in the world, end quote. And he said that it was so bad that he made sure it was not on the DVD when it was released. So he didn't even want people to watch the trailer after they'd seen the movie. <laughs> like this trailer was so fucking bad that you could see it after watching the movie and it would make you somehow unwatch the movie and unpurchase the DVD. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty fucking yeah. bad. But like we said, critics loved this movie. It holds a rating of 92% on Rotten Tomatoes based on 112 reviews with an average rating of about 7.8 out of 10. Um, That's pretty fucking yeah, good. And the, That's higher than I would have guessed. The summary of the re- the reviews says, Election successfully combines dark humor and intelligent writing in this very witty and enjoyable film. Um, similarly, it holds a Metacritic rating of 83 out of 100 and a Miscinema score of B- minus on a scale of A to F. Additionally, it placed fifth in the first annual Village Voice film poll. So it had some good accolades and some good things. Um, to talk about ratings and reviews, we've got our positives and our negatives. Andrew, if you want to read the positive, I will take the negative one on this. All right, I'll do it. Our positive review this time around is from Mick LaSalle of the San Francisco Chronicle. And here's what Mick had to say. Election, which opens today, is a black comedy that takes off in unexpected directions. The good guy of the story is a sad sack history teacher with a predilection for porn and a marriage that's failing. The villain is Miss Perfect. What makes the teacher the hero and the student the villain is hard to say. Tracy does nothing monumentally horrible. Yet the viewer looks at her smiling face and cold eyes and knows that person. Something inside just changes. Broderick has never been better. He's taking on water from his first minutes on screen, and soon he's sinking and flailing. Watching his misery is a perverse delight. Yeah. So there's a little bit of scha- what is it? schadenfreude going on here <laughs> in this yeah. review. Um, and the negative review, there were a couple, like, 
bad, bad reviews that came, like, from people who couldn't stand this movie, but they were all from, like, defunct movie blogs that don't really exist anymore. So I tried to find one from a publication. As, so just to, just to summarize, Jared's saying that if you become unemployed, your opinion becomes no, invalid. That's, that's what he's telling what us. Said. Not what oh, okay. I said at all. Okay, well, never mind. Anyway, um... This negative review came from Lisa L. Spector of the Chicago Reader. Quote, Tracy Reese Witherspoon is a model high school student who applies herself so obsessively that her future isn't just bright, it's blinding. Determined to become student government president, she runs unopposed until the faculty advisor for the election, Matthew Broderick, decides she has to have some competition for her own good and the good of the school. In the grip of a midlife crisis, he realizes that his determination to teach her a lesson in humility may have something to do with his sexual discontent. The treatment of this touching material is impressive, neither gratuitous nor mincing, but this 1999 satirical comedy doesn't really go anywhere. Directed by Alexander Payne, director Alexander Payne wrote the screenplay with Jim Taylor based on a novel by Tom Parada. So it doesn't hate the movie, but it just kind of states that it doesn't really go anywhere. I think that's... Sorry, I, I think that's kind of the point of the movie. Yeah. I think that I think the idea is like I don't know. I I feel like the movie is trying to tell you that you can't change your path. You know, it's like you're going where you're yeah. going. Yeah, I feel and I feel like it in a way it may have been a little bit ahead of its time because not everybody got that got that idea and they didn't. Well, people expected that character arc, right? And that's what they tried to do with the first cut. And the audiences didn't like it. So maybe if they'd left it how it was, this person would have liked yeah. it better. You know, it's because it's more comfortable or it's easier to, to digest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As it is, Election is ranked number 61 on Bravo's 100 Funniest Movies and number 9 on Entertainment Weekly's list of the 50 best high school movies, while Witherspoon's performance was ranked at number 45 on the list of the 100 greatest film performances of all time by Premiere. And that's the only 45 related to an election that I'm okay with. <laughs> that's a good point. Well played. Well played. But there's one other person who apparently loves this film. Rob Schneider. No. Okay. Mr. Barack Obama himself. Payne has gone on record to say that Barack Obama told me twice that it was his favorite political movie. I met him once in 2005, and he had just been selected. He'd just been elected senator, and again in 2008 when he was running. Both times when I introduced myself, he said, "Oh, um, election is my uh, favorite political movie." Oh, uh, election is my favorite political movie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, go. God, I miss yeah. having an adult in the go. White House. Um, anyway. Let's wrap this up and talk about The Legacy Beyond 1999. It's kind of a film nerd thing. If you still collect physical media, hi, I still do. Um, it's a real problem, but... We don't all have houses, Jared. We don't have room for that shit. Some of us are living the life of luxury. <laughs> anyway, the uh, election was released on DVD on October 19th, 1999, and on Blu-ray on January 20th, 2009. And a special edition Blu-ray was released by the Criterion Collection on December 16, 2017 with a 4K restoration of the film. So if you're a film nerd, you're into all the behind-the-scenes stuff and the making of, uh, there's a Criterion film and release of this out there for you to go check out. And since its release, it has become known as kind of a cult favorite, as many people have rediscovered it over the years. And kind of like we were saying with Arrested Development, wasn't huge at the time, but now people are kind of going... 
oh, this is great. Why did I not watch this before? And here we are today talking about it on a podcast. That's, that's what I did, too, when I watched it. So there yeah. you go. I, I think, Jared, probably the most lasting legacy of this movie beyond 1999 has to do with the way that Tracy Flick has kind of become a shorthand for women in politics Absolutely. nowadays. Um, and this is, you know, this is a relevant conversation given what day and week it is. So let's just fucking right, do let's it. Let's go. Let's do know? it. So among some circles, the name Tracy Flick has become a pejorative term for women, particularly women in politics who are perceived as being too accomplished, too hardworking, or too ambitious. Which, by the way, is bullshit in the first place. Because nobody would accuse a male politician of being too ambitious, hardworking, or accomplished. Exactly. That shit just doesn't happen. So this is horse shit. But it's happening. So we gotta talk about it. A lot of the women who have been compared to Tracy Flick include, but are certainly not limited to, Elizabeth Dole, who was a Republican senator who served under Nixon, Reagan, and H.W. Bush. This one's not much of a surprise because she's mentioned directly in the movie. There's also the Democratic senator and presidential hopeful Elizabeth Warren and the Democratic senator Kristen Gildebrand. So all three of them have been compared to Tracy Flick. And, of course, the most obvious one, the one we're going to talk about the most, Hillary Clinton. Of all of these women... Hillary Clinton has borne the brunt of the Tracy Flick comparisons, especially during the Sorry, that was my Trump uh, supporter impersonation. Continue. Sorry, what (laughs) what did you say? Pizzagate? Is that what you said? Christ, yeah. Did you say something about emails? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Pantsuits, is that something you said something about? The the point is that Hillary Clinton was just compared to Tracy Flick all the time in the 2016 election, which I think probably is one of the reasons why this ended up being a part of the— Sorry, which is one of the reasons why I think this was released on Blu-ray in 2017, because people were reading all these articles in 2016 oh, it didn't even occur to me. and going, oh, shit, we should probably put that shit yeah, back out. Yeah, it didn't out. even occur to me. Um, so in 2016, during the election, there were a shitload of think pieces comparing Clinton to Tracy Flick. And here's just a couple of them. There was one called The Very Uncomfortable Experience of Watching Election in 2016, which was published by The Cut in September of 16. There was Hillary Clinton, Tracy Flick, and the Reclaiming of Female Ambition, which was published in The Atlantic in June of 2016. And then there was The Triumph of Tracy Flick, with a question mark, published in The New York Times on November 7th, 2016, which I think maybe was written without a question mark when people thought Hillary was going to win. And then they added the question mark and did some scrambles to edit it before they published it on November 7th. There were also a lot more. On top of that, in January 2008, Slate produced a video mashup that showed Clinton's campaign footage alongside clips from election to draw a comparison between Clinton's and Tracy's feelings about the inferiority of their opponents. And as far back as 2003, when the Christian Science Monitor reviewed Clinton's autobiography called Living History, they quoted an excerpt in which Clinton discussed her participation in a cultural values committee during high school. And the review said, quote, There is obviously some truth here, but the tone of the passage reeks of Tracy Flick, the overachieving, overly serious high school student from the film Election. Not to belittle the efforts of the Cultural Values Committee, but a brief aside to show that Clinton understands that high school sociopolitics is not exact on par, sorry, is not exactly on par with race relations would be nice. So they are literally comparing Hillary Clinton's actual record to the record of a fake person in a movie who's supposed to be an over-the-top caricature of a female candidate. And this shit was happening in all of these articles. 
not just the bogus one from the Christian Science Monitor, but even the legitimate ones from publications like the Atlantic and the New York Times. So, and, and some of these people think that they're doing a good thing by drawing these comparisons. They don't even realize what they're doing. Yeah. You know what I mean? And part of that might be that there's not another hugely successful female politician that they feel comfortable comparing Hillary Clinton to. So they they make this weird random comparison to somebody in a movie. I don't know what's going on here, but I don't think it's very good. No. That's what I no. have to say. Um, all, all I'm going to say is I cannot, and I know this will happen, I cannot wait for the day that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez announces that she's running for president because I want to watch Fox News lose their fucking minds. It is going to be beautiful. Oh, they're going to talk about Tracy Flick when that oh, happens. Oh, my God. They're absolutely. It's it. like, it, it, it's just so funny because how many films are there about, like, male politicians, like, good and bad? Like, there's all sorts of these things, and no one's making comparisons to them, but yet no. they're going to pick the one. And, and, of course, maybe some of these comparisons are unintentional because there are publications that are like, oh, there's... Oh, it's kind of. Do you see that's kind of ironic that it's, uh, she's kind of like Tracy Flick. Okay, maybe we could write about that, not realizing that it could be damaging to lay that like stereotype down. I think they're all pretty intentional. You think they're intentional? Unfortunately, oh, that's a shame. Yeah, I, 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 I would like to go and read some of those articles after this. I'm sure that I will. Um, I read them. They're fine. They're. It's thinly veiled analysis dressed up as pop Got culture it. Okay. garbage. Ah, oh, that sucks. If it, I mean, to put it bluntly. Mm, that's a shame. You know? So the moral of the story here is it's not really fair to compare a real-life politician who's actually done things and worked to become successful to a fake character from a movie from 28 years that's ago. That's something you'd expect you know from I mean? our like, president right now, not from a, a right. press publication. Um, agree. Yeah. So, so, so that's the thing. Um, but the comparisons ran rampant in 2016. They still are. And they were so pervasive that Reese Witherspoon and Hillary Clinton have both acknowledged them. In fact, they acknowledged them in a conversation with each other. So at a producer's conference in Hollywood, one member of the audience asked Reese Witherspoon whether she'd ever consider playing Hillary Clinton in a movie. And Witherspoon responded by saying that she already had. Yeah. And she was kind of joking, kind of not, but she was talking about her role as Tracy Flick. And she recalled, quote, when I did meet Hillary Clinton, she said, everybody talks to me about Tracy Flick in election. Yeah. And I honestly, she Hillary Clinton would probably rather never hear the words Tracy Flick again I'm in sure. her life. I'm sure, yeah. But this has become the reality for both of them. So there you go. Um, the director of the movie, Alexander Payne, also acknowledged the comparisons between Flick and Clinton. And here's what he said, quote, Every four years, when some gal is running for president of something, they dredge out the Tracy Flick comparison. It might be Kristen Gildebrand or Hillary Clinton or who knows who. Then I'm called to make some comment about that. I wasn't seeing it so much as a political metaphor. I knew it was in there. I just thought it was a fun little comedy. So I have some issues with the way that he worded this. Some gal running for president of something is very dismissive. Yeah, it sounds very old-timey. Yeah, it really does, doesn't it? So I, I don't know what the fuck is going on with Alexander Payne here. But the I, I think the point behind this is, like, that it's a tired comparison. Like, he's rec he's pointing out that this is a really fucking just been driven into the ground 
the the horse is dead and beaten into a pulp at this point. You know what comparison this is like that I could com- if somebody listening to this is still not getting it, but they're listening to and maybe they know they like our music they like our music references and this and that. I know the perfect way to summarize this. What is it? This comparison of every female politician to Tracy Flick is every band with a female singer being compared to Paramore. That's exactly right, Jared. And you know what's fascinating about that? Is that you just compared a comparison to a comparison. <laughs> and that might be the most meta thing that's ever happened in the history of time. Well, so but I'm it's impressed. kind of like it, it's kind of like that. It's a very tired comparison. Like it's one of those things where you could go like I, I look at that and I'm like, okay, I get it, but can we move on? Let's like let's not analyze this film anymore. Like it's been analyzed. We'll analyze it because we're doing a podcast about movies. I don't want to see like pu- like the New York Times running all these think pieces about. I don't know. The movie doesn't need to be used as a study aid for exactly. what's happening in real life. Maybe that's the you could the point allude to it for sure if you hire an entertainment writer to write about it after the fact. Sure, maybe something like that. But like that doesn't need to be a front page news analysis comparing what you just said, a fictional character to a real situation going on right now. It's just it's it's weird. I agree. Yeah. I totally. It'd be agree. like if people started when. Obama was running for president if they wrote a piece like that saying Mr. Smith comes to Washington like writing something based off of that movie um or you know what I mean you know what I'm referring to I I haven't seen that movie so I'm not 100% sure but I believe great movie uh uh older film starring uh Jimmy Stewart about a politician who comes to Washington um oh Jimmy Stewart to to make change and Mary do you know me (laughs) Do you know me, Mary? It's me, Mary. Do you know me? One final interesting thing to note on this is that while most of the women who tend to be compared to Tracy Flick are Democrats, Tracy was actually based on a Republican hmm. in the movie, and she is portrayed as being to the right of center. <laughs> so she writes a letter to Elizabeth Dole in the movie, and in her final scene, she's seen working for a Republican congressman from Nebraska. What's even more interesting about this, though, Especially because we're talking about, oh, it's not fair to make all these comparisons, right? Many of the women that Tracy is compared to, including Clinton, Gildebrand, and Warren, all grew up in middle or Rust Belt America and initially identified as conservative or centrist in their political yeah. views. So there actually is a little bit of a similarity going yeah. there. But I don't want to validate that, so fuck it. You know? Yeah, I, I, that's that's an interesting little thing. I think being conservative years ago meant something a bit different than it does now and i Amen, will leave Jared. it at that um there's unfortunately one piece of controversy that has been following alexander payne over the last several years um according to an article that was published on a site called exo jane in 2016 holly hughes the former production coordinator on election wrote an anonymous piece entitled... Oh, yeah, then how do you know it was Holly well, Hughes? i get to it. Uh, wrote an anonymous piece entitled, An Oscar winner bullied me so badly that I quit the film industry. Now, it was written anonymously. The film was not named in the original article. But she used, in the story, the first name Alexander, the location Omaha, 
and the distributor, Paramount, in said article. Okay, so if we're playing Guess Who, we've only got one and, card yeah, so standing. And in 2016, with IMDb and with internet detectives all over the place, pretty easy to find out what it probably is. After the article was published, though, she made a post on her personal blog and tagged it with election, election reflection, sexual harassment, and workplace bullying. I looked through the piece, and I want to end the show on a positive note, and since we already did the whole fucking American Beauty episode that had to end on that really uncomfortable note, I'm going to let you go and do your own research. The essay is somewhere on the internet, and it's tough to read, but it's... I don't know. It's The article basically... It explains how she was sexually harassed by, I believe it was an assistant director that was on the film, and Alexander Payne, I don't know how he was with the rest of the crew, but for this woman, he was apparently a gigantic asshole. It's It definitely is a stain on the legacy of this film. It's a, it's a bummer to learn. It is a, it's, it's a bit of a stain on the legacy of this film. It's still a good film. It's kind of similar to how... American Beauty is a very good film in the way that it's done, but it's got kind of a weird legacy behind it and yeah. kind of how the story, the, how the, some of the subject matter is cringy and you're kind of like, oh, well, it's just a movie. And then in real life, it's kind of like, uh, there's some weird shit going on here too. So anyway, let's get to our reactions and close this out. Andrew, do you have any burning questions? I don't really have any. Well, I already, I already asked you this once. But why do they call them Apple Jacks if they don't taste like apples? <laughs> we'll have to report back on this. Actually, I'm still you know thinking what? about I'm it. I'm curious. Let's see. Jared is uh, diving into the bowels of Wikipedia to oh, understand. Oh, this is bullshit. <laughs> I found the answer. William Thilly grew up on an apple farm, and that helped inspire him to use apple as a primary ingredient for a cereal. And he experimented until he found just until he found and got the cereal just right. He called his invention Apple O's before the cereal was renamed to Apple Jacks later on. I guarantee there are no apples in the cereal, though. But it has to do it has to do with heard. when it was started. Now That's it's all made with chemicals. I guarantee. Now I want Apple Jacks. Damn it. <laughs> Should we get into Let's our get into reactions? Our reactions. <laughs> it's getting late. Let's All do right. it. I think it's getting late. We're, we haven't podcasted in a while. We're yeah, getting a little tired. But anyway, go for it with your reactions. I'd love to hear what you think. All right. I'm going to start with the shit that I didn't like first. And then I'm going to move into the shit that I liked. And then you're going to do yours in a similar order. All right. Just like we've done every other time on this podcast. I don't know why I'm making a fucking thesis statement about it. Anyway, the first thing is just I don't really understand why the whole student-teacher affair thing was necessary to the plot of the movie. I get that it was in the book. I don't understand why it was in there either, but I think maybe with more characterization and being more drawn out, it would make more sense. I don't think it was necessary to the plot of the movie. I found it distracting. I thought the way that they handled it was weird. I understand that it was 1999 and people thought about things differently. But, yeah, I was met on it. I didn't feel like I needed that in there. I also didn't like... There's a weird little scene where Jim's trying to fall asleep. And then it just, like, is Tracy just, like, whispering shit to him? Like, her head becomes, like, superimposed in the shot. 
from multiple angles and she's just like but she's like saying actual words i just don't remember what they are and it's like this weird asmr thing and i don't get it and i don't like it and then the last thing that i didn't really like about the movie is like there's just some outdated vibes about like oh being a lesbian is bad you know like you know there's just carryovers from another time that that feel outdated at this point so not a huge fan of those things here's the things i did like though i loved the unflattering freeze frames of tracy i thought it was fucking hilarious i loved the scene where tracy's sitting on the bus and she's just looking pissed and it zooms in on her from like across the campus and it gets super close to her (laughs) face i love an extreme zoom i think that's funny so good job um, the scene of Jim washing his balls was very funny. So if that's the only reason why Alexander <laughs> Payne made this movie, then I agree. That was great. Um, there is a little fourth wall break at the end that does feel like a nod to Ferris Bueller. And I appreciated that. And finally, I had to laugh because there's a part after he moves to New York where he says, rent is steep. 1550 a month. Plus <laughs> I laughed utilities. at that too. I was like in fucking New York city. I'm like, dude, come on. Are you yeah. serious right now? eat yeah. me so that those are my yeah. reactions okay um the affair thing makes no sense like it, it it again like you i get that it was in the book and i get that they were being faithful but even then it doesn't play like in the outcome of the election and even with him finding her annoying or being attracted to her or whatever the affair thing was just kind of this weird aside and then the teacher gets fired, yeah. and then it's just like kind of just creepiness for the sake of being creepy. Well, the, the the point of it is that he doesn't like her because he thinks that she ruined his best friend's life. That's that's what I think they're getting at. I, I do get I that. I think it would be enough. I think it would be enough for him to dislike her just because she's annoying to him. I. And we would totally buy that, and we wouldn't need all that weird creepy yes, shit as well. Yes, I think that that would have been more effective for me personally. That, and then, I'm going to be totally honest. I am still conflicted on whether I love the ending or not. I don't... Did you watch the alternate one? I haven't one? seen the alternate one. Uh, I forgot to watch it, but I... Because I will tell you this. If you don't like the one that they have, and then you watch the alternate one, you will like the one that they have. Okay, all right, so I'll, I'll take a look at that after this, and I will check it out. But I I don't know. Like, I, I think, and I'm still trying to get, because there's part of me that's like, I love that they took these risks, and the story isn't like a linear character arc. Like, the, exper- like the experimental film person in me is like, oh, that's awesome. They're sticking it to a major studio and going against the norm and what this is. But at the same time, I'm like, this character should develop and grow, and he doesn't. He's just the same person throughout the course of the entire movie. And there's part of me that just doesn't like that. But it's like, I'm conflicted on it. Um, when I finished the movie, I was kind of, the first time I was like, ah, uh, okay, I, I don't know if I loved how it ended. But then as I started doing more research for the show and reflecting back on it, I'm like, did I like the end? Like, I don't know. I'm still thinking about it. But at the same time, that may be a sign of a good movie if you're still thinking about right. it days after. The freeze frames are, were very funny. I loved all that shit. I love the janitor reveal. I think it's, like, the funniest part of the movie. Um, and even with what I said about the ending, I do think the scene where he throws the Pepsi at the at the car 
was very funny. And then he just he well, just dude, runs. <laughs> there's this whole thing in the movie where earlier Tracy's talking to him about Coca-Cola. And then you see him drinking exclusively Pepsi for the rest of the movie. And there's there's something to that about there's something to that that relates to this idea of an election. And it's really relevant to what everyone's talking about right now with Trump and Biden, which is essentially that you have these two things and people really fucking love one or they really fucking love the other one. And in essence, they're exactly the same thing in different packaging. And I think that idea that like Pepsi versus Coke thing that they have in this movie is like a really subtle metaphor for what elections are. You're choosing option A or option B, and they're both wrapped up in, you know, red, white, and in Pepsi's case, blue. They're both vying for your attention. They both want your dollar slash vote. And it's just an arbitrary thing, which one you decide you want. And I think that's fucking fascinating. It is fascinating. And I think that, I feel like that metaphor holds up differently in previous elections, though. I feel like in this one, it's more like, do you want a Coca-Cola or do you want a steaming bag of dog shit uh, that is pumped out of a soda machine? I agree with you, Jared, but a bunch of the real hard left people on Twitter wouldn't. And that scares me a What do you bit. mean? There's a lot of people who do think that Trump and Biden are essentially the same thing in a no, different package. And it scares yeah, it, me because those people are either voting or yeah. not. So that's just, I don't yeah, want to get yeah, into yeah, too but, much about okay. that, but I'm just going to leave it at that. Okay. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. It, this movie, I will say for some, one of the things that I did love about it, it's that it gave me a lot to think about with little comparisons, like the, the Coke versus Pepsi metaphor versus the way that they, basically wrapped all of these little things up into like the more i think about it and reflect back on it the more i want to go watch it again and be like oh i didn't i don't know if i caught that that time let me see if i can go see if i pick up on that this time and i start to like it a little bit more every time i think about it um i think it does a very good job of taking two basic things which is that you would see in in film which is a movie about politics and a movie about excuse me and a movie about high school and then turning the idea on its head just slightly but enough that it's different than something you've seen yet very familiar to everything that's going on around you well and the fact that it's a movie about an election that's targeted at people who are not old enough to vote is another very interesting that's true thing. It's kind of like, look, you should care about yeah. this. Like, this kind of shit is happening to you already. I think I think that sums it up perfectly. And I think just to, to transition out of this, all joking aside, um, as we wrap up this episode, we, like I said, we were going to do Varsity Blues this whenever we were going to do the next episode. I pitched this idea to Andrew that, hey, I think that as kind of a nod to the fact that a very big election probably the biggest of our lifetimes, at least, is going on next week. We should, as kind of a nod to that, talk about election and do that a little bit earlier than we had planned to do. So, And I was totally on yeah, board Yeah, so we that. did this episode. Um, and despite what we have said, and we're not going to—I'm honest—I'm going to be honest, you know our political views probably very clearly after we've done this episode, but um, 
we're not going to tell you exactly who to vote for because that is one of the things that's really, I think, something that is still great about our country. Now, if you want to have the right to vote after this election, I would say vote for you you know who we're talking about. But go out and vote. It's one of the He's talking about Biden, <laughs> by the way. I I'm, I'm going to I'm I'm going to be more ballsy about it. I'm going to say vote. Yeah, you for know Biden. Vote either you should vote for sure. Please go vote. Please don't vote for Trump. If you do, that's your thing, whatever. You know what the fuck blood you have on your hands if you make that decision. I understand that Biden's not a perfect candidate. He's not my first choice, but he's the choice that I have and if you're taking a bus you take it to the bus stop that's going to get you the closest to where you want to be. You don't just say, fuck it, I'm not going. So take the bus, vote for Biden. All right, fuck it, vote for Joe Biden. Exactly. Fuck Trump, don't vote for him. Please vote for Joe Biden. Like, you know, if you're a Trump supporter and you like our podcast and this makes you mad and you don't want to listen to it anymore, fuck off. Don't care. Bye. So yeah, uh, go out and vote. Vote. We're going to encourage you to vote for Joe Biden. You know where we stand on this. But as it is, regardless of that, go and exercise your right to... This is one of the very few things that I think Americans have a say in, in terms of opportunities that are provided to us to have a say in our government and let people know. And I think more now more than ever, it is very clear that voting does work. A lot of people have, over the last few years not seen results and then they turn up and vote and what do you know things change and you know what even if the election doesn't go the way that you want it to you will feel better about yourself knowing that you voted for what you believed in so do it even if you think it's absolutely just fucking do it and drop your shit off don't put it in the mail on fucking monday yeah, morning honestly whatever way you're deciding to vote if you want your vote to count drop it off in person if you can be safe and you can socially distance go to a polling place place your vote or drop off your ballot whatever it is don't don't mail in your ballot right now i'm gonna say that just because of some of the shit that he's trying to maneuver right now and it's really fucking ridiculous that this even has to be a thing as an american you are guaranteed a right to vote so what by whatever means necessary get your vote in and uh be safe this these next few days this is going to be really insane and after you cast your vote go on amazon and rent varsity blues and watch that shit because we We are going to talk about something much more like an episode that's going to close on a much more lighthearted note. Um, so yes, next week we're going to be talking about the one and only varsity blues. Um, the film is currently not streaming anywhere, but you can rent it on Amazon prime video, Google play, iTunes, YouTube, or wherever else you rent your films digitally. Andrew, do you have anything else to add to this episode to close things out? I'm going to go wash my balls in the tub. I'm going to go get a drink. All right. See you guys. Um, be kind. Rewind. We will see you next week for varsity blues. See you for our Zoom call on Saturday, Jared. Be ready. Oh, God.